I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah, that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish... of the debrief i am your host brianna joy gray and it is leo season buckle up <laughs> tell me what's going on with all of you guys and of course we have an opportunity to talk about today's episode i spoke to dr stephen thrasher who was a bernie surrogate who is a professor of journalism who has been covering and focusing on uh HIV AIDS stigma in particular in a way that made him, I think, a particularly useful guest to talk about monkeypox, the newest virus, uh, the newest infection on the block, as it were, and some of the kind of interesting nuanced messaging issues around it, the tension between wanting the communities that are disproportionately affected to get treatment they need, but also uh, not stigmatizing them in a way that ultimately is going to lead to less public attention paid to the spread the way that happened in the 80s with HIV AIDS. Um, and also some of these issues that came up about whether or not uh, the government should be upfront with us or change the messaging to try to curb behavior. So you'll remember there was this moment with all of the masks and stuff where they wanted to preserve the high quality masks for people who 
were professionals who worked in hospital settings, et cetera, and therefore misled us initially about whether or not masks were useful and what and how the disease was uh, transmitted, which I think led to some long-term distrust. And here there's potentially a similar thing emerging where there is a desire to make sure that people in the community that is disproportionately affected, which is men who have sex with men, get access to the monkeypox vaccine. Um, but are they going to be up, you know, are they, are they going to mislead us about how it can possibly transmit and stuff in order to make that happen? And I, you know, Definitely think that that should happen, but it would be, I think, a mistake to downplay the risks that are more broadly real um, in order to have a certain desired policy outcome when you could just be straight up about the policy outcome. Lots of things to discuss here. Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff happening in the world. It was a big RIP weekend with some real greats leaving us. Um, Bill Russell, um, NBA star, happened to speak at my college graduation, which was pretty cool. Um uh, the voice of who of the woman who played Ursula the Sea Witch. It's been a rough couple of years for the vocal actors behind that uh, franchise, that in that film, and also the crossover with Star Trek. Obviously, Rene Aubergenois died a few years ago. He was the voice of uh, the chef in The Little Mermaid, Les Poissons, Les Poissons, <laughs> and also, of course, Odo on Deep Space Nine. And very close to my heart is the passing of Nichelle Nichols, um, Lieutenant Ohora, who I've dressed up as more times than I can count, cosplayed her at Comic-Con just last August, about a year ago, um, and came this close to getting to ask William Shatner a question while dressed as her. I know he wanted to ask me it, too, because of the way he was eyeing me at that microphone. But they wrapped the event in a way that probably saved both of us from an embarrassing <laughs> exchange. But... No, obviously she is legendary and her role is legendary and that show broadly speaking, you know how I, I feel so strongly about what a wonderful representational job it did in terms of modeling a kind of progressive politics that is often not found on TV and I think rarely found even in sci-fi, which tends to be more dystopian than, than utopian. Um, and to have a black communications officer on the bridge, you know, I got to love that. Um, she was graceful and intelligent and I've probably heard the story about how she wanted to quit the show because of some onset drama and Martin Luther King called her up personally and said that she should stay on because the representational value of her being there and there being so few black characters on TV at the time that weren't playing maids and so that's a, a real loss to the Star Trek community uh, but I'm going to go ahead and play a brief clip from this episode and then we can get right into it I wonder what you make now in kind of retrospect of the way the, the public health messaging has gone and, you know, what would you. Ooh, sorry. I don't know what's going on there. I had a little bit of a glitch in the old video. No worries. I will pull it up elsewhere since that download doesn't seem to be working. Here we go. To me, one of the, the most disgusting things that Biden has done is like pushing this. I'm powering through it. You know, when mm. he 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 te te uh, when he put on Twitter, you know, keeping busy. That was those were the two words uh, where he was at his desk, maskless, you know, with the photographer and I'm sure some other aides in the office, too. Right. Um, and so that like to me, that's a real that's an, an enormous failure of leadership and certainly 
something the Democrats should have wanted very differently from, you know, the, from someone who came uh, after Donald Trump, um, to even take away the idea that we can try to avoid it without, as you said, you know, saying someone's better or worse, but that, that keeping transmission to a minimum is a very necessary point of any disease intervention and public health strategy. You must try to do so without shaming the people who become infected, but also trying to keep it at a minimum. That, of course, they're not trying to do. Then when you see the president of the United States say, I'm still working, that takes away any ability for other people to say, gee, I should you know, rest, which is what people should be doing. Right. I was very lucky when I got COVID and I'm very blessed and very privileged. Um, I mean, it happened in a term when I, at a time of the year when I wasn't teaching, but you know, I have a salary job where I have sick leave. And I did not read, I did not write, I rested those days. And I was very glad I was able to. And, yeah. and as anyone with a salary job, like the president of the United States should be modeling. Uh, and of course we, we should fight for more people to have that as well. But I thought like that was so damaging to see him, but I'm, I'm just going about my business, everything's fine. People should not feel like they can catch, like COVID is a time to catch up on work at yeah. home. All right, and since then, we got this from uh, Karine Jean-Pierre. Uh, a reporter asked her about Biden's behavior, and they keep doubling down on this idea that he, against recommendations and medical advice, is working through this. To my knowledge, I don't believe you've talked about him getting extra rest or taking time away from work. Has he also had blocks of time where he's not doing anything so that he can rest? What I can tell you is that he has uh, been working eight plus hours a day. Uh, that is a schedule that he continues to keep. Instead of doing it in the Oval Office, he's doing it in the, in the White House residence. To my knowledge, I don't believe. Cool story, Kareem. All right, Andy, you're up first. What's on your mind this evening? Hello, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. All right. Yeah, it's sad to hear about Nichelle, uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols. Is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, Nichelle Nichols. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I want to hear from you. How's your day been? It's been pretty good. I was up early. I was very productive. Sorry, I had my delay, but I, you know, I broiled some salmon and I have this newfangled oven in this new apartment that has this convect broil setting that I'm not very familiar mm. with. And it just took a little longer than I anticipated. So <laughs> hence the delay. Thank you all for your patience. Well, I'm glad you? you got your sustenance. <laughs> Me too. I'm a little, a little less scatterbrained when I do these calls post dinner. But what's on your mind? Well, I mean, I think these last two episodes were really good. I very much enjoyed uh, last Thursday's episode um, and this episode. I felt were very good and kind of made me think a lot about, I don't know, how much stress the working class is put under and still ex- uh, expected to troll, uh, like, you know, walk along to tough it out. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of got me thinking about... So, have you heard of this um, YouTuber called Ask Mortician? I haven't. So, she's really good. I recommend her. It's like recreational learning. Um, so, she's an actual mortician, and she once talked about how in like the like early 19, um, uh, 19 aughts, uh, there was, um, what's it called? 
uh, Black Plague epidemic that sprung up in Chinatown, San Francisco, and how the government tried to cover it up because it was kind of embarrassing to have, you know, that plague going on in their city, mm. and how the Chinese people, the Chinese people, like the workers, tried to cover it up because recently it had infected like a, a Chinatown in Hawaii, and what they did was they burned it down in Hawaii, and they were worried mm. that was going to probably happen again in Chinatown. It was a very good video that I recommend. And it kind of got me thinking about, okay, so what they ended up doing in the video was a guy called Blue, who was in charge of like, settling, settling it, but was also expected to fail, because they didn't want to really solve it. They just didn't want it to be a problem. But Blue came in and what he did was make a gig, gig economy out of it, where um, he killed rats and got other people in the community to kill rats so that they could all kind of work together mm. um, to, you know, stop the spread. And I don't know, I think that would be... So I guess what I was thinking was that and last Thursday's episode, um, thinking about... It was, it was a very good episode because it made me feel empowered in the sense that I think we can all... It reminded me that I think that we all have the capability of making a real change if we enact it. And I know that it's you know, it's the power of numbers and we don't always know what the other person is thinking. But I think that it's something that we can achieve. I think we can achieve communication to the point where we're, where we're all working together in that way. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a lovely thought. I mean, have you given some, any thought to how, you know, what that would look like? Yeah, I actually, okay. So here's how I organize. Mm -hmm. So I organize by sending your video, uh, your uh, like podcast episodes to friends and family. Sometimes <laughs> it's like curated ones. So if they're like interested in something, I'm like, oh, well, you know, there's like this podcast and like, but no, a lot of people are interested about th certain things and you cover a large variety of topics. So it's like yours and like other um, internet, like what are they called? Video essayists. And like, it's just kind of good to communicate on that level. So I remember last Thursday, you were talking about how you felt, you know, disconcerned because on some level, we don't have the same interaction um, opportunities as we once did where people had mm -hmm. cookouts and real social events like church. And I think we definitely don't have the same types, but I do think that we have social events. We just have to find out what those are and how we can connect that way. But I definitely try to be more social. I try to like compliment people's like outfits if I'm like, on my bike, just like crossing them. And like, it's mm -hmm. just a real quick interaction, but it's nice. And like, you know, it makes their day a little better, but yeah, that's what I try to do. Um, I'm hoping that when I get into college, I can like maybe, you know, set something up, like talk to some people, maybe get something going. We'll see where that goes. But yeah, I talk to family and friends, just really try to communicate them so that I guess we can all feel connected in like what we're going through as the world seemingly gets worse and worse. But you know, show a little bit of hope that, you know, these people that you bring on and like that this is like a, um, a talked about issue. It's not all just them in their head. And yeah. So, sorry. Well, Andy, no, you're, you're an inspiration. The only people I spoke to today were the folks who were working in the furniture store. I jogged to, to see if they mm -hmm. had an item I'm looking to buy in stock. <laughs> Well, yeah, and now you, you guys. <laughs> okay, okay. Here's some good conversation advice. You could like bake cookies and then like say, oh, you could go to your neighbors and say like, oh yeah, I baked extra. Do you want some? I don't know. 
You could do that. Neighbors, you could LOL. be <laughs> Andy. Let me let me ask you this: When sure. you pivot from the kind of generalized friendliness to politics, how, what is that yeah. pivot like for you? Um, and what kind of reactions do you get when it becomes clear that you have a you know a particular political perspective? Well, I definitely do sometimes force it a little bit, but I try not to force it too hard. So I'll try yeah. to wait for the for the situation to come up. But I do feel like, you know, personal lives have these things and I can be like, oh, well, yeah, I know what you're talking. Like, I have this friend who is trying to get into nursing and he's talking about like, yeah, there's all this stuff and involved. And I'm like, yeah, and it's been so much harder. And like, I mean, you know, I was talking about how like, I mean, it was crazy how they, you know, back in, I forget the time period, but like the nurse strike when like they tried to get the women's uh, rights and more stuff like that. And like, then we step viral from there. But yeah, sometimes when, you know, my eye, like we don't agree eye to eye, I just kind of say like, or like, I don't have the best memory, like short term memory of specifics. I mean, sometimes I have a good memory, but like, if I forget like specific things, like they're like, well, how are we going to pay for it? And I'm like, how are we going to pay for it? I know we have ways to pay for it, but what are they again? Or Mm -hmm. people will bring up like, well, we don't have the if they're like a liberal on the like the Democrats and like, uh, like, well, you know, the Democrats just don't have the power. I'm like, oh, how do I say that we have the power, but they just don't use it. I forget. But I basically just kind of stick to my guns and say, you know, I think that there's just a lot more we could do, you know? And I think that, you know, a lot of people are talking about it and like, you know, I'd love to like hear, um, like share with you like this or that stuff. And like, you know, we could have a conversation about it and just kind of like, I don't know, like, uh, learn about and see what you have to say because you have like this experience or that experience and I don't know I just tried to make a conversation out of it where it's like you know social <laughs> well look it sounds like you're doing the Lord's work Andy and I appreciate you and I appreciate you you can too today. we can all do that we can all do that <laughs> okay you, you heard Andy you guys all have a task if Andy is out here about out here pounding the pavement and doing the doing the work we can all do it thank you Andy you can keep the that's faith. the new year's resolution so make a start <laughs> and then you can like start implementing change next year but yeah keep the faith I appreciate you all right take care take care all right, neoliberal tears. I see you out here, out here on Twitter, doing the most. What are you up to this evening? <laughs> oh, the game recognizes game. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> I love you. Thank you so much for everything you do. Um, I and, and especially too for this episode and looking at monkeypox with a, a COVID retrospective as well in terms of what we could have done differently and better, because it's something I'm certainly thinking about. Um, And I wanted to share, I guess, in terms of the public messaging and how messed up it was, I wanted to share, I guess, a personal anecdote. I I was working in New York City for the city um, in social services at the time of the pandemic. And I was there for six years. I really loved my job, you know, great healthcare, unionized. um, And I managed to get promoted to be a supervisor um, after a couple of years. And I really loved it. You know, we were um, dealing dealing with the public. And um, one of the last signs we had to put up before we shut down everything, um, St. Patrick's Week, was that, uh, you know, like with New York City.gov official posters, they, and the last ones were saying, don't wear a mask unless uh, you feel sick. You know, mm-hmm. it's really important that you don't wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and had to put flyers like that all over the offices and make sure. 
uh, of other offices were as well. And um, that week, uh, when there was um, that that week of March 17, um, I don't know if anyone wants to get a flashback back to that time, but um, basically, they there was one week where they the mayor and the governor disagreed on how quickly to transition hundreds of thousands of city workers into remote work. They just, mm -hmm. the, the Cuomo wanted to wait a week. The, the Blasio said no. So we were basically in limbo. And in the, in, at that time, hospitals were filling, filling up and nobody could get, a te could get tests anywhere unless you were hospitalized already. And mm -hmm. one of my team members, she was um, older and had asthma. I've known her for years and worked with her. And uh, because we were open those decks for three days, and they waited so long to close us. Um, she got sick. She ended up in a coma for three months. Oh my God. Um, and uh, her son, you know, he was 21 years old. And they asked the doctors, uh, the doctors at a certain point asked him like, uh, you know, can you, can we take her off of life support? And then somebody intervened. She ended up waking up that Easter. Um, and it just really had a really, strong impact on me um oh in terms God. of thinking what i could have done better i should have told i should have called her in that monday and told her to call out you know because she got on the subway um on march 17th not because she didn't have enough sick leave balances but because she wanted to be a good worker mm -hmm. and she wanted to be there for the team and i felt like i let a lot of people down even though it's not uh, I know it's not my fault and systemic, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But I think when it comes to public trust in general, um, when you were asking Dr. Thrasher, I think you were ahead of the curve in terms of where people are at, in terms of trusting public health notices that tell you masks are not effective. Like literally that when people were out there getting sick. Um, and I know now it's less I guess less deadly and, you know, we're all back and, you know, we have the vaccine, but mm -hmm. I think build, rebuilding that trust, I don't see where that goes, but I just want to say that thank you for always pushing back on Robbie, who thinks the most authoritarian thing that ever happened to him was having to wear a mask going indoors. <laughs> like what a nightmare. I had to clip that too. You know, I'm doing my own little organizing. Yes, and I put saw it on, TikTok. on TikTok. I appreciate you. Look, you know, I have like 10 TikTok followers and don't really manage my account, but I got an alert and I saw your clip and I loved it. By the way, if you already just have those clips and you want to tweet them, I obviously have a bigger audience on Twitter and I'm happy to retweet those kinds of things. I find clipping to be extremely onerous and I never I do it anymore. I'm so honored. Oh my Lord. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, thank you for, um, thank you for everything you do and thinking through this monkeypox thing. Cause I'm not sure I even know what the solution is. Um, I really don't. Uh, like now I, I've, I moved to the Midwest after that whole thing happened and I was mm. out of work for, for a year, mm. you know, just using my savings and not feeling like I was ready to um, get back out there. But now I'm at a regular job. I came back um, like I, there was, my car had some engine troubles. So I found like a job at a gas station next to my house. And um, so I work like a full-time a uh, job now for $15 an hour. And, you know, I got, I, I just like you, I got COVID uh, like a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago for the first mm -hmm. time. It was my first rodeo. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was never worried about me. I was always just worried about, you know, how it's impacted the more vulnerable of us. And, um, and I don't know that people like Robbie even care uh, 
about it's not like I'm not like a mask crazo like I'm not saying let's all mandate but I'm just I'm saying that we and I appreciate you trying to come at it from a humanistic perspective because I think most of us have lost some people to COVID and that's what we think about when we wear a mask or not you know yeah it, it's frustrating to me that you, it's like at this point especially in the context of the hill it's like you can't say mask without everybody hearing you say mandate and it's like forget the mandates. There's no mandates anymore. I can't mandate anything. So just relax for a second. And can we have a conversation? Because, you know, Robbie has been out with some colds. You know, you guys have seen it. I mean, there's been, I think it was like my first week full time, not like full time, but whatever, three days a week at the Hill. He was out and I had to anchor alone because he keeps getting sick from other kinds of things. And, LOL. you know, it's, it's like, you know, everybody gets cold and some of it is chance and I'm not, you know, attributing, you know, cause, you know, correlation isn't causation, blah, blah, blah. But it is, you know, I, I would like to think that just for the sake of one's coworkers and for the sake of the show, because if we're all out, you know, the show suffers also. I mean, one or two, you know, can be out at a time, but there's only so many hosts that you can come to fill in. And you don't want all the you know, newbies. Agree. The I mean, when Robbie is off, I think we all benefit collectively. Stop. It's a way for the universe to rebalance itself. I mean, nobody Stop. agrees with him. When he was talking about the minimum wage and how it's like a powerful contract, like marriage and like, you know, you should it should be zero. Like nobody agrees with him. You could find the most yeah. right wing commenter and they would say like, I don't know what the fuck. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's true, it? but I mean, that's when we're talking about sh a straight up and down labor issue. Unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, from my perspective, given my politics, you know, the majority of the comments under the majority of the videos, people are with Robbie, you know, I have, I have to tell reason. you, I looked I mean, into this, I, I have to say, so. I've noticed that sometimes um, as soon as a rising video posts, like uh -huh. like one minute as, uh, since it posted, there are already five people named uh, Chris, Richard, whatever, insert name there. And they already <laughs> commented saying, Brie, you're lame. They haven't even listened. It's a 15 minute segment. What are you doing? Like, who is this? I mean, is this Nira Tandon? Like, I'm just, there. how deep does this go? Because they're not listening to the substance. The rest of us are. Um, and and yeah. but there, there's a group of people who comment as soon as a rising video posts, like their own comment. And, and it's just all like, Brie, bad. Brie, bad. Like, there's no so I yeah. just hope you you know that the rest of us know this. And well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, my favorite my favorite ones are the ones that are very mad at me for being quote unquote obsessed with identity politics. There's there's a commenter that keeps accusing me of saying as a black woman, which I like never say. <laughs> which, by the way, I'm well within my rights to say oh, from time to time, but no, yeah, never like, say it because I know exactly how much stigma it is. <laughs> yeah. um, I go out of my way yeah. to not point out people being racist when it's well within my rights because I'm trying to avoid that kind of commentary. And these people who know nothing about me accuse me of being like the queen of identity politics, which I always find to be very amusing. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't take it all too personally, but I do think, you know, like, like it or not, Robbie and I were joking about this last week that like neither of us, you know, we're there to represent the left and the right, but neither of us, I mean, he's not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat and there's something kind of perverse about us sitting there who, you know, you know, talking, representing sides that we do not subscribe to personally and, you know, from, from my perspective, at least. So the majority of Democrats on Twitter, at least, are no fans of mine. Um, but the reality is, like, 
it's split. You know how the country is? It's split. And so I was, I was heartened to see the responses to that one labor segment, but we got some work to do. You know, well, we've got some work to do. I, 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 I just want to add a little, one little thing. I, I, and, and thank you for letting me, um, let me share this with you that like, I do think that you are representative of the real left. Um, mm-hmm. I, you, you, you speak, I think to such a deeper voice within all of us. Like I, I've never, as a 31 year old gay man from Israel, I've never had someone speak to my politics in the way you have. And I know that other people share that. So I think there are people like Jang, for example, a representative of someone who's trying to catch up or to copycat. And I wanted to say, because you are not able to, um, that the reason why he wants to have you on TYT and not go on bad faith is because he wants the views <laughs> that, well, you know, course. he wants to monetize and own and the property. I mean- yeah, you're right. I can't really say that. And I don't want to assume in bad faith. But I was can't say it because we, we won't let anybody clip this, but I can say it. <laughs> you know, because I, you know, I'm a small channel. I, I, I didn't come up through Young Turks like so many people did. I didn't come up through anything. I mean, obviously it was on the Bernie campaign, but I had a podcast before Bernie. You know, it is a little frustrating to me, you know, that I, I felt like his suggestion that I might be unethical in how I handle the interview or edit it in a way that was not transparent was, it was frustrating because who would accuse me that I've never done that before? Like, why would I do that? Um, But also it does, it did feel a little pre like a pretext, uh, like a little bit of a pretense um, just to get the views, which, but it's fine. He can, you can get the views. Uh, I think it's more important to bury the hatchet and get past some of this nonsense. So. I, I, you know what? I think for the people in the chat who are not sure, like if Brie should go on TYT, I would just say, listen, this is gonna, it's going to be amazing. I mean, oh my God, like the, the content value, I mean, for, for the real left, I think that does supersede any like weird grudges, um, that I think people hold against, you know, I, and, and I guess I'll finish with this thought. Um, thank you for also everything you do about, you, you say about force to vote for whatever reason it like, it still haunts me just as a regular nobody person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, cause, it, cause it was really that one moment we had before Democrats would lose their majorities and there it was a way. And in a way I was thinking about this. I wonder if you agree, um, that like in a weird cosmic way, uh, maybe this is my toxic trait of trying to think that everything is happening for a reason, but it's almost like we did get out of, like the point of force to vote was to realize who was the fake progressive and who was a real lefty. And in a way we got our answer, didn't we? It's just not in the way we wanted. Uh, we realized Med- Pramila Jayapal was going to create Medicare for all PACs and, you know, that would fundraise off of the idea forever. We realized who the real progressives were. There were none yeah. of them. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that I think continues to cloud it for me and why I'm not quite where, say, Jimmy Dore is on some of this with respect to writing. I mean, Pramila's off to me. Like, Pramila's canceled in my brain, immediately gone, like irredeemable. But some of the other people, like, I don't know from, from some of the things I've heard, and this is not an excuse, but it is something other than bad faith. Um. Some of the other folks, I have had some indication that they didn't know what was going on, which again is tragic and something that should be critiqued because they should know what's going on. But they didn't know what was going on and basically only knew that, you know, there was some guy called Jimmy Dore who was doing ad hominems and attacking Sandy and then they had to rally and protect Sandy. So 
like I don't. But, 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 yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's that's obviously ridiculous, and uh, you know, someone asleep at the wheel, and we need them to do better and to be able to look past that kind of petty, superficial stuff. I, I, I don't mean to. But I don't someone, mean. Yeah, sorry. I don't mean to downplay yeah, that the, argument because I understand where it's coming from, and I'm sure, I don't dispute that that's what probably uh, AOC's people were saying. But at the the reality is that like hundreds of people watched that town hall, and it was very clear even from Sam Cedar in your brilliant uh, debate that I keep coming back to. Sometimes mm-hmm. um, he was saying that he had sort like so quote unquote sources on the inside right. who reached out to him told and told them it was a exactly. bad idea and to stop talking about it. And we were ema- peop- we were emailing people like Pramila Jayapal. Yep, we I were remember. Calling. I was part I mean, of there was trees. real pressure and their yep. reaction was to say, fuck you yeah. all. Yeah, that- totally. I, I was there with you spending my Thanksgiving holiday <laughs> making those calls. Too. I, I vividly remember, which was also so, what was so frustrating when so many of the folks who are anti-force the vote were accusing us of not putting the work in and thinking that we could just be Twitter activists and all of those other, other kind of things. I mean, it was unbelievable, but... Whew, you're getting me all worked up remembering all of this stuff. But I do I, I don't bring up that like um rationale to say that it was an excuse, but just to say that it's not, you know, I would still love for some of the people who chose to ignore first the vote for those reasons to be willing to come on a show like this or, you know, Katie's show or whoever else's show or you know, who was on the right side of things and talk it through. Of course, and AOC would have been <laughs> brilliant, even if she was like a self-serving narcissist, which I think we all kind of know. But, but like, even if she was, like, that would have been the reaction. I mean, you interviewed her at South by Southwest. Like, you, she could have done that now. in yeah. her own, to her own benefit. She could have yeah. come up with answers. She could have engaged with the left. And she, all of them could have. I'm not yeah. singling out AOC. She, she, they chose not to. And at a certain point, we have to think through what does that mean and and instead of blaming ours because because i really get triggered when people blame the activists who were yeah. just trying to get health care and um i i even uh it's sorry this is the last thing i'll say um i, I even remember there was a like a, a DSA, a call, it's on YouTube, um, the, from UPenn DSA people, and they were having Crystal and Katie on mm-hmm. um, to talk. I think it was around February of uh, 2021 after Biden was elected. And all of the questions were about from the, you know, from the students were about forced to vote. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, and Crystal's reaction at the time, I think, and it makes sense and I understand it, it was to say, I kind of like to not focus on issues that are so divisive. And I'm mm-hmm. in my head, it was really disappointing. And, you know, because who, who is the divisive here? Who, yeah. You know? it, I mean, that energy, people are like, stop talking about it. But it, the, people are still talking about it because you're right. It was... It was like a perfect – I don't want to use the word litmus test because even the idea of a litmus test somehow, some way has gotten stigmatized, which is ridiculous. But it, it was this this perfect reveal. <laughs> and I'm not saying like revealing people to be like secretly paid by Katzenberg or whatever, all of that shit. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it revealed who had the appetite for a certain kind of politics. A kind of politics which I would argue is absolutely necessary and which is the only kind of politics you should ethically pursue if you meant everything you said during the Bernie campaign. Either you meant it, either Bernie meant it, 
And these are all existential crises and climate change. And it's unconscionable and immoral that 68,000 people die every year from a lack of health care. Either you believe that and you pursue this more adversarial approach where you're willing to take prisoners and hold people, you know, hold speakerships hostage and make enemies in the Democratic Party or at least get kicked out of the Democratic Party for doing so or marginalized for doing so. Or you're a liar. And you were only saying all that stuff for clout, you know, and there, there's no, to, to me, the, what was so affecting about it for me in the moment was that it, I revealed, it revealed to me that all these people who I would, some of whom I had been literally working alongside, who I thought were my friends, who I felt all of this warmth and energy and simpatico with were on Twitter talking about, you know, like dunking on me and subtweets. I'm like, sir. You were two desks away from me for an entire year, throwing your arms around me when we won Nevada and acting like we were best friends. And now all of a sudden, like, I'm enemy number one because what? I don't think Nancy Pelosi should be Speaker of the House. Are you kidding me right now? Come on, Owen. Come on. I mean, seriously, like, do you realize it's a bad look for you? I mean, it was just... Exactly. And it was it was Nancy Pelosi on the line of all people. The Taiwan jet jetting Nancy fucking Pelosi. And we could have we could have ousted her. I mean, and and and, you know, I know that people like David Sirota, you know, at the time said that they had other kinds of reservations and that it it wasn't enough. But I think I still want to know. Which squad member reached out? Um, and I'm sorry, this is just me. Um, mm-hmm. I want to know which squad, which squad member reached out to who in media? Who reached out to majority report in Sam's, to, into Sam Cedar and what did they say? Because I think on the left, one of the terms that I think we've started to use because we've had to is access journalism. It's been mm-hmm. a part of our experience and what we see. Mm-hmm. It's been organic. It's not because Jimmy Dore said it once. It's mm-hmm. because and and, and I, I just as a curious person, I want to know. I want to know what AOC's people told Ryan Grimm about force the vote, because it's my opinion that the case has been. I think it's a cop out that to say that they didn't know it was happening. I, I mean, we know that yeah, there no, was. I think, a they knew organizing. it was happening. I think it wasn't that they didn't know it was happening. I mean, I think they were a little late on the uptake, maybe by like a few days or something. But I think they definitely knew it was happening. But they saw it only through the prism of personal attacks and not at all as a legitimate strategy. I think that they really had these Jimmy Dore colored blinders That sounds on. convenient, though. But that sounds really convenient, doesn't it? I mean, this is, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to bring up Jimmy Dore, like, you know, to the, you know, to the, like, I swear it's not about, I mean, he, he, he popularized it and I think he's wonderful yeah, was, for, he was, for doing it. He was right. It. He was right. But it, he was right People about can't it. Stand that's, that he was that's right. The thing. Exactly. Yeah. And it didn't matter, by the way. So he raises the idea. He he comes up with it. He was like, it wasn't even really mine. He got it from DSA, the 2019's organizing strategy. He he popularizes it. I, again, learned about it from Sam Cedar. I was watching Majority Report. And he brought it up as an idea that he had heard from Jimmy Dore that he liked. And when I heard that Sam Cedar liked a Jimmy Dore idea... That's when my ears perked up because I knew that there was antagonism there. I said, oh, it must be a really good idea. Let me pay attention because if Sam Sam says he likes something Jimmy did, it must be really ace. And it was only later that the pivot happened after, as you point out, he was contacted by somebody from one of these progressive campaigns or or administrative offices. 
And that's, that's the thing. It's like, I, I actually, I got a Reddit alert. I don't really use Reddit very much, um, but I got a Reddit alert and I was wasting time and I clicked on it when I came into my inbox and it was a recent video, a new video from, you know, I think Ben Burgess who was still talking about this and, you know, mentioned uh, me by name specifically and was making fun of me for raising in the article that I wrote at the time, the possibility of general strikes, et cetera, as complimentary to a moment like this. And it's interesting to me that he picked on that point because, you know, substantively, there's no argument against forcible. I'm sorry, there just isn't. And we debated this at the time. You can find the debate on the Internet. And in my humble opinion, he had no answer for me then either. I know that he perceives himself to be the king of debate, and I don't mean to disrespect his authority. However, I also happen to have a little bit of background in rhetoric. And I might have practiced as a litigator for seven years. And I hate to tell it, had to tell him the reality is that he was just wrong factually and also couldn't, you know, oratory his way out of that mess. Cause he was just is not sufficiently skilled to do so. And the facts were not on his side. So to, to, to still feel, to, feel like people are doing this kind of sniping. I don't know. The other, the other neck beard white, I'm sorry. I'm going to do identity politics. Now I do feel like a great deal of disrespect around this. Because I felt like who who was for force the vote? Crystal Ball, Cornell West, Chris Hedges. None of that gets discussed. None of that gets discussed. And who you know the people who are antagonistic to it were a certain class of longstanding. Oh, Kyle Flinsky was for it, you know. But the people who were against it were a class of longstanding, very YouTube people. Who I okay, felt Nina. like. I'm sorry. Oh, kind of. Maybe Nina Turner, too, I think. Oh, Wasn't she? Nina Turner. Actually, unclear. Is, Sorry. Let me she, retract. Yeah. I asked her. I asked her. It was around Christmas time that I interviewed her. And she gave a kind of noncommittal answer. I think that she, I can't say, I'm not speaking from knowledge, but it seemed to me at the time that maybe she had been having conversations with squad members about it and felt like she had to not comment. And then I think later evolved into a supportive answer after it was kind of over. Um, but you know, like I can appreciate how if everyone, you know, in Congress who are your legitimate friends are telling you that this isn't something they want to touch, that you go along with it, but we need, we need principled actors and we need people to realize these moments when they come up, you know, it's just, and look, I, I don't know, like, I'm not, I'm not sitting here naive and thinking that, that um, Pelosi didn't threaten them either. I, I, we all now, in the months since, saw AOC crying there on the House floor and all of that. We know that there are threats. What I would like is a world where when Nancy I'm sorry, Pelosi that's another somebody, argument. And I have no patience for that argument. I mean, we, are, we were literally dying after COVID there at that well, point. Well, you know? I, I want to see a world when, where Pelosi, when, when Pelosi threatens somebody... They come to the left media and tell them what Nancy Pelosi has threatened to do. Why are you covering for her? What are you gaining from this? And if you are, in fact, making some kind of trade that you think is actually legitimate that we would accept, then you, have, you owe us to tell us that, too, or we're going to keep dragging you. If you really think you got some meaningful concession, we, we, you need to at least pony up and tell us what that thing is. Because otherwise, what are we supposed to believe? This pago bullshit still? 
Uh, I'm never not too funny to me. I'm sorry. Ryan really tried with that one. Ryan really tried. And it was, I I mean, listen, he follows me on Twitter and I just want to be clear. It was so embarrassing. Embarrassing. You should be ashamed of yourself for putting that out there as some sort of a win. I think after two years, we can sort of clarify that it wasn't. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, it, it look. You know, we all know we saw the episode where I talked to Ryan about all of this and we had an off the, you know, a private conversation with that was a lot more, (laughs) more intense, shall we say, before we got to the point where we had the online conversation. And, you know, the, the, the irony is the only reason I can make any of these arguments is because people like Ryan and David Sirota have patiently explained things to me over the years and have, you know, shared their institutional knowledge and their knowledge of the Hill with me. I didn't know any of this stuff about the parliamentarian and the this, that, and the other. You know, like, they are, they are I think, a more a, this huge responsibility because they are the keepers of all of that. They're, they're the grown-ups in the room. And I, I'm so appreciative of them for being, you know, playing the role that they play on the left. Um, and I'm very appreciative of David Sirota for, you know, suffering some slings and arrows and all of this. You know, he he got to where he needed to be and I think was very helpful in providing feedback through that whole process, even though I know that he continues to be maligned by some for not perhaps being as aggressively pro-force the vote in the early days as we would have, you know, liked. But that's the thing. I don't feel like, like, I need David. I need Ryan. I, I (laughs) I need them to be doing journalism and explaining things. And that is, I think, part of why force of vote was so painful. It's like there's not a single person that I was on the opposite side of that issue with that I didn't want desperately to be an ally with. This wasn't like a, oh, I'm so glad you're proven wrong because I've been wanting to dunk on you forever kind of a thing. It was like, no, please, I desperately miss when we were on the same side of things. I'm explaining this to you because I think this is important, not because I want to do a debate me bro you know, rodeo and dunk on you on Twitter, on YouTube. Of course, it was about it was literally about the issue, I think. And that's why it resonated with with so many of us. You know, it wasn't about and I mean this with the, the, the most respect, Brie. It wasn't about you and you weren't making it about you at any point. And that's why it was really disappointing to me. You know, David Sirota might be on board now, but at, at the time when it mattered, I think then just the division aspect of it, I think, created more hubala, hubala, hubala than than the issue itself, which was we literally have numbers here and there's something happening where uh, squad members are reaching out to journalists and telling them, no, 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 cover it this way, cover it that way. I mean, that's a, that's this that's a story. And I've and, and you're the only one that's been brave enough to to talk about it and represent and represent our view and not, you know, um, so, so thank you. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. But also I do want to I mean, I do want to say, you know, crystal ball. Katie Halper, Kyle Kalinske, Cornell West, Chris Hedges. Like, there was a a very impressive roster of people, you know? And it really is frustrating to me that all of those voices get ignored and the accusation, you know, again, I'm not also intending to throw Jimmy Dorn to the best. He deserves credit. But it is frustrating that there, you know, all of those opinions get reduced to the um, ad hominem. Oh, I just didn't like Jimmy Dore. Okay. Well, if you don't like Jimmy Dore, here's a whole, uh, action pack of heroes you can choose to pick to fight. 
or villain, however you see it. Pick no, your fighter. Of course. <laughs> like, no, it was deliberate. It was deliberate. And I feel like it's what Nomiki is trying to do, I think. I, I, I hesitate even bringing this up because it doesn't deserve attention. But, like, you know, it's the sort of idea of raising the vision to sort of bring both of you down and sort of distract from the issue. And yeah. and not you know what neoliberal tears you are so messy because you got me to have this whole conversation and I'm I'm, I'm deadly about sorry. to get in trouble for it <laughs> you are so messy but look 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 real talk truly I have I'm not gonna lie there are a couple of actors from all of that that I have some simmering personal resentments for but the overwhelming majority I just really do want to push through I the, there are a couple of people who personalized it in ways that I found to be disappointing shall we say but generally speaking i i i i want to have a positive relationship with chank i want to have a positive you know relationship with you know even even in at least a neutral relationship with sam uh, we we you know these are like all this the is biggest... the alternate universe we all wish for but i think it's clear that they're the ones that are choosing to put personal feelings over everything else it's not like you haven't done the reaching out or the lol organizing oh that's all you do i think these people are just committed to being against it for reasons that they're not saying out loud and i i think it's a problem because at the end of the day policies and moments like this end up affecting the entire left in the long term. And that's why it is important that for me, at least to keep hearing about it and talking about it, because I think there was a, a lot there that we haven't really reckoned with. Well, especially because, you know, they told us it was going to be about $15 minimum wage. That didn't happen. They told us it was going to be about build back better. What did Mela do in the fifteen dollar wage? What did she do? She took it out. She like, sabotaged it. She's the yes. one that pulled it out when she had the lever. Like you know, that's why I'm saying I think forced to vote really was sort of what we wanted it to be, just in the shittiest way. It was exactly yeah. what it was intended. So. Yeah, which is also why I probably will never get any of these progressives, uh, other than Roe, God bless him, <laughs> um, to come on the show. Because, I mean, that is that is the line of questioning. That is the only the only really real thing I want to know from any of them is whether or not they regret how they played this whole thing. And when I asked Roe this back in, it was probably last winter, um, around the first vote probably, no, no, no. It was obviously after that. It was last winter. It was around the Build Back Better failure. Um, and I asked, you know, do you regret the bifurcation? Do you think da, da, da? And they all, he said, no. Like, he, he thought that Pramila made the right decision and said all of those uh, kinds of things. The bifurcation. I mean, that neoliberal mess. I mean, I, you know, like that, like skimmed down milk toast version of a nothing burger. Uh, I mean... Come on. I mean, even the child care tax plan Matt Bruning was saying was like an extreme mess. I mean, even that, I mean, and the fact that Roe went out and defended it. I mean, I I really am great. I'm so grateful to you for always for not um, hedging when it comes to asking hard questions that are on all of our collective minds, like, you know, and asking real tough ones, you know, because Roe, at the end of the day, I think it's probably a shame thing for, that he has from being a lawyer trying to prove that he can win a debate and he's not winning it at any of your episodes. I mean, that's clear. And I think that's what the squad ultimately is afraid of. They're afraid of you. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm really not trying to kiss ass. I'm just saying, I think they're afraid of you. I think they're afraid of losing 
the image and the brand that they've built and and, and that they'll crumble well, but that's, under that's real what's, I think you're I think you're basically right, but that's what's so disappointing because like all things aside, I feel like Tyra Bang. Like I'm rooting for them. Like I'm disappointed. I, yeah, I, I want yeah. them to figure like if any of them came on and were just like, you know what, I made a mistake. I was relatively new in Congress and I put too much faith in the institution. I knew it was gonna be an uphill climb, but I underestimated exactly how ruthless the establishment was going to be. I thought there would be more opportunities to change and I was wrong. Um and you were, you know, the the approach that was offered by you know, that part of the left was proven correct by history. And we need to figure out how to create opportunities like that in the last two months. You can change him. He won't change. I think like if they came out, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I mean, I wonder, I think obviously I would die if they can, if like Cory Bush came on bad faith, because I know you'll ask her questions that are on my mind, but at the same time, do I want to be lied to? Um, do I, do I, you know, and the fact that they're not even willing to make that like that obvious step and instead going on CNN and just to show that Force to Vote did have like real force behind it. I mean, they did get asked on CNN like one time, like, you know, would you guys ever vote strategically like Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman? And, and they couldn't even say then, no, we're, we're, we're back to doing our district thing. We love our district. We just, and they just want things and those things are things. And yeah. You know, my vote is just whatever. And then yeah. we saw, like, even if they went on bad faith and said, you know what, we really screwed this up. We apologize. Ele- donate to us. Here's the link. Uh, you know, at the, I think at the end of the day, they would have still done the police funding bill thing, vote coordination thing. Yeah. They would have still, AOC would have still skipped on the Amazon union. I mean, I think, and Jamal Bowman would have still been fundraising off of uh, you know, uh, not getting the the bill yeah, passed. Look, bill I, I'd like to look. I, I the door is open for them to do the right thing, but you you can't push them through that door. So I think at this point, a lot of what these interviews are, to be honest, are substantiating the claim that Jimmy's been making from the beginning that they're sellouts. I personally feel like you have to lay the foundation for that kind of a claim, or you open yourself up as Jimmy has done to be called a bad faith actor or a hater or doing a violence or whatever this kind of stuff accusations he gets are. I don't think that he's necessarily wrong. I think that we need to make sure that we just have the evidence for it before we make those kinds of claims, given how attached so much of the left is to these figures, you know? So that's, that's what I hope to gain from these kinds of interviews. Yeah, sure. They might pleasantly surprise me and apologize and say they made a mistake and say like, let's work toward the next great strategy going forward. I would love for that to happen. I'm not like rooting against that happening, but the reality is I think what I want, what was more likely to be the positive, you know, the useful outcome of these interviews is to, to ask them to explain themselves, give them an opportunity to do so. And then when they don't, and when they can't, you know, Jim, Jimmy's right. And you know, the, the fraud squad, hashtag is there to be used you know we'll see maybe maybe we'll see <laughs> anyway thank you so much from your liberal dreams you you got me in some messy mess nobody i'm glad the clip function is off of this episode or off of this app 
So nobody can drag me through Twitter and get me in fights because I'm trying to. You didn't get into any trouble. I was I was the messy one. I promise. Um, <laughs> you are brilliant and captivating as always. And thank you so much for doing Rising. Really, I think you speak for for so many of us, and I really really look forward to it. So and bad faith always. So thank you. Thank you. You're so sweet. Keep the faith. All right, Ayende, what's on your mind this evening? Hi. Um. So I. Um, you know, I, I desperately want to know what Nancy Pelosi, like, told AOC to make her cry. Like, that, that, that is one of the world's greatest mysteries. I feel like a part of me feels like, um, like, uh, AOC underestimates her, like, cachet with, like, liberals. Like, I feel like AOC has girl-bossed her way into Nancy Pelosi being the villain in any type of, like, exchange that happens, mm-hmm. like, even in, like, most liberals' minds. Like, Nancy Pelosi is an elderly, like, wealthy woman, right? Like, in any optics mind, like, if AOC goes on The View, like, even with Crocodile Tears, like, and a fretted voice, what what Nancy Pelosi said to her, like, mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi ultimately, automatically becomes a villain. Like, I don't see any world where she does that and she doesn't become the villain. But, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I mean a little, I want to go on she, else. she has to be a little respectful because, you know, Whoopi can't stand it when the young whippersnappers challenge the older folks. So she has to say it like, I have the utmost respect for Nancy Pelosi and the trail that she's blazed for women in Congress. I came to Congress looking forward to her tutelage. I refer to her as Mama Bear and really hope to learn valuable lessons about how to enrich the interests of my district and working people across America. However, I was disappointed to discover that corruption in among Democrats was worse than I had feared. And the reason that I broke down that day is because when I tried to vote by principle, Nancy Pelosi threatened me with X, Y, and Z. I am ashamed that I did not stick my landing and vote according to principle, but I think it's important for the American people to know what kind of constraints even progressive electeds are under and that we're going to need your support so that we can have some independence from the Democratic Party and vote in the interest of the American people. You know, after all of that, like, Brie, like, I, I swear, you need to be, whoever the, progr- the the progressive president is, if we ever have one, like, you need to be the the um the press secretary. You need to be. I'm not like, doing that I shit again. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to careen Jean-Pierre me. No, Sariba. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like you'd be great at it. Yo, no, y'all not going to get me. Oh, no, y'all not going to get me. <laughs> Look, it's hard because she has to lie. <laughs> like, you know, okay, that's, that's... But, but I feel like, but I feel like anyone that you would be press secretary for, you wouldn't have to lie for. You would just be I mean, able to, like, find a way to talk, say it. You know what I mean? Unless, I mean, we would have, th- I would have thought that was true of, you know, some combination of Cori Bush and AOC and all of that back in the day, right? But obviously there's some things going on behind the scenes. There's something going on that they're not disclosing for one reason or another. Even if, you know, if Bernie were president and they tell him where the aliens are and all of that, <laughs> you know, at a certain point, there's some things you're just not allowed to say. If, he, if Bernie's president, he's president of the CIA and the FBI and all of that dark, horrible shit, too. And he's going to know things. And I'm going to have to lie about them. But, I mean, that is not a position that I personally want to be in because I don't feel like I'm an especially good public speaker. I just am good at explaining how I feel. And when what I feel is out of step with what I'm being asked to say, 
I'm word salad. <laughs> Which is how I accidentally said that Michael Bloomberg had a heart attack. You, you can <laughs> you're very good at oh wow. You're very good at steel manning like arguments you don't believe in though. Yeah, but why are you why are you trying to make me a liar? Like I don't understand. <laughs> Look, I, I I would be happy to advise, you know, people behind the scenes about how to make the best of their situations. But like you, it is when you are in that position, you are going to make people upset, and you know that's the job. I get it, but I, you know, I don't relish that. You know, I'm in a really lucky position to be, you know, independent and to not have to worry about any of that from a political spe- perspective or like a network perspective. And yeah. you know, that's such a privilege. It would be a, it would have to be a lot to get me to walk away from that kind of freedom. Do you remember how lo- yeah, wild I was I- tweeting in 2020 when I got off of that campaign? <laughs> Cuz I had been I had my hands <laughs> tied behind my back for an entire year. Can you imagine being on that campaign? Man, I couldn't say a single solitary negative word about Pete Buttigieg. Do you know what kind of hell on earth that was for me? <laughs> I couldn't say anything about Tara Reid. I couldn't say anything about anything that was happening because, you know, I was representing Bernie. The second that campaign was over, I was in these streets. I was in these Twitter streets because I had all these truths <laughs> that had been on the tip of my tongue waiting to come out through these, you know, Twitter fingers, you know? So, I mean, like it was, and, it, it felt, it feels much better to be able to say your truth. That's all. I guess so. But, um, since it came up and I've kind of been burning to like talk with you uh, about this issue, um, which is kind of like 15, 15 minimum, $15 minimum wage. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, for me personally, right, I can I kind of separate politics from policy in that if something is popular, like for instance, if I'm in Joe Biden's shoes, right, I ran on fifteen dollar minimum wage. Fifteen dollar minimum wage is popular. It economists say on average it will help the average American. I have the power to do it. Of course, I'm doing it. Right? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense not to. But like for instance i remember like being in a room with like we used to have these policy debates all the time the cs cs people love love to do this too right um in college we were like a a group of people and i would always be the one like because at this point it's a theoretical debate and i would always be like somewhat against it or have reservations for it right and my reasoning was never is because like a lot of people get to 15 dollars minimum wage via everyone like should like wages should be enough for people to live right Mm -hmm. and the way that my rebut to that is is it that wages should be enough for people to live or people should have enough money to live because you know i'm a Mm -hmm. i'm a ubi guy right Mm -hmm. and so i i don't essentialize people to their wage or to their workplace right i'm always like i'm always going at the fundamental like you should be People should have money. Regard if you're if you're gonna have some moral argument of people having enough money to live, go straight to it. People should have enough money to live, right? Mm-hmm. And I would also go into like the weeds of there are certain situations like people are like people would sometimes say some like you know they would bring up the exploitation argument, right? And I would say it's not necessarily true that someone is, who is making less than like fifteen is being exploited because. I'll give it an extreme example, right? Bill Gates. If Bill Gates, for some strange reason, decided to decided to 
work for $2 an hour, right? Are you going to say he's being exploited? No. And even though that, that example is obviously way too extreme to apply to everyone, there's some level of being taken care of by like, whether, whether it be the state or whatever outside of your workplace that would, that would make it so that having working for less than 15 would not necessarily be exploitative. If you get what I'm saying. And what's your response to that? So I worked for someone once who was an affluent Republican and he happened to have a child with special needs and got, uh, Medicaid for it. Uh, and we sometimes would have this conversation and I would say, well, don't you, you know, how can you be so anti these government programs when you are a recipient of it? And he would say, well, I would give it back if I could. I don't like it. Now, even though he was affluent and didn't need it, I support him having it because my thought is that he is taxed at a high bracket maybe should be higher, (laughs) but that the money that is given to him is clawed back in a progressive way. And I would say the same thing of Bill Gates, go ahead and I'm not going to sacrifice minimum wage workers because of a hypothetical about Bill Gates. I don't think it's, if Bill Gates works a job, he should get paid a living wage. And to the extent that he's Bill Gates, he should be in an extremely high tax bracket that funds all manner of social programs. Well, I'm, um, I'm not. I'm not really talking about a. I'm not really talking about a like a, a means testing like thing. Like, oh, like why does Bill Gates deserve fifteen dollar minimum wage? I'm more so saying like, is it truly exploitation if Bill decides to work for two dollars for two dollars or whatever it may be, like seven dollars, whatever it may be, and if it's well, the case ask, that it's not exploitation. Let me ask you a second, yeah. What does that example prove? It proves it proves more so that it's not necessar- it's not necessarily exploitation for or there are other ways to guarantee that someone that someone has like all of the like the the economic freedom right there are other ways to guarantee economic freedom other than a fifteen than mandating a certain exchange right and uh, well, like what happens what happens in most cases when you have like a like when you the minimum wage is high right which I'm not saying it's it's high it's basically zero now. Mind you, I would have preferred if Joe Biden had made a fifteen dollar made a fifteen dollar minimum wage included in the um the bill that he passed. But I'm more so saying that I, for instance, I prefer other means of guaranteeing people's economic freedom other well, that's than fine. mandating. You, that. you can you can make the case for that, and people make have different arguments, pros and cons, all over the place, right? There are people who say, "Great, universal basic income," but what what is it going to be set at? Knowing that we live in this puritanical culture that we're in, and people think that there should be no such thing as a free lunch, you know, are you going to get as much in benefit as you would if you guaranteed people a living wage? If you don't tie it to labor, is it going to be a, a bigger political lift? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Are you going to be um, made vulnerable to the attack that? Uh, you know, um, people want to have UBI. Some people argue in favor of a UBI so that they can cancel other social safety net supports that are greater in value than the prescribed UBI amount. You know, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, but that is a concern that some people have about 
UBI given who tends to be pushing UBI. Again, that's not necessarily fair. It's not intrinsic. It's, not ne- it's like not necessary to the existence of UBI, but it's a concern people have. So you can make the case for why you prefer a UBI to other kinds of things. But I think the political case for a $15 minimum wage is that we do have minimum wage laws in this country. People fought very hard for them. There is still some cultural understanding of the value of a minimum wage. Um, and what we, I would argue we should have is a UP, uh, sorry, um, a minimum wage that's linked to inflation that automatically goes up over time. So we don't have the longest period in American history without a, a, a minimum wage raise. We don't have to constantly have these arguments, but I think that you can, you can make your case for UBI without having to resolve the hypothetical about um, Bill Gates. You know, I, on some level, I don't know. I kind of do feel like if what the implication of what you're saying is kind of a moral maximum income. I had a debate with Nathan Robinson about this on my old podcast, uh, Spody. And it's interesting. I, you know, I had mixed feelings. Nathan felt at the time that there was a, you know, he had come up with a number that he felt was a moral maximum income, which I remember thinking at the time was much too low. <laughs> um, he was living in New Orleans and his, I think costs were not necessarily representative of the cost uh, in New York where <laughs> I was living. But let's just say that it's a number that we could have agreed on. And I've been having this conversation a little bit with a friend of mine recently. You know, as I think about like, you know, does anybody, you know, how much more benefit are you getting over like $400,000 a year? I was thinking about this. Like, how, you know, what is the diminishing return over like, you know, set it high as you want, but like way lower than the billions of dollars that people have a million dollars a year, 5 million, 2 million. I mean, like, honestly, I, I'm really seeing, I, I, I suspect some real diminishing returns, even if you live in a big city at around $400,000 a year. Like I have, I'm having a hard time with, cause if you're two couples, and you're both making $400,000 a year, I don't see okay, yeah. <laughs> why you need, <laughs> like, I'm really struggling <laughs> with what you're getting over that. <laughs> um, you can send all the kids to private school. You can have a whole little basketball team of children. And I'm still not, I'm, you're still can't afford it. So, um, so we were debating this. Hard. <laughs> uh, well, even Harvard, I mean, now this wasn't the case when I was in school, but now they cap um, how much you have to pay as a percentage of your parents' wealth. So even if you made $800,000 a year in this hypothetical family, if you had 10 kids and for some reason they were uh, just destuplet, I don't know, I don't know what you call 10 kids at once, but um, they were all, sorry? They couplets, no? They couplets, no? I don't know, sure. And they were all in school at once um, and you were paying $80,000 a year each or whatever it's going to be in the near future. Uh, it would still only be, you would still only have to pay uh, a 10% of your, your income. So $800,000 total for all of those kids, which is probably about would work out to full tuition, to be honest. So yeah, you would have to pay, but you could pay. You literally could. Anyway, yeah. the, the point is, um, the, I'm, I think I messed up the math, but you get what I'm saying. Maximum the, wage, maximum, maximum, um, wage. maximum something. Yeah. I, I think there's something legitimate to that. And if that's what we're basically saying, then we can say that. But there is something a little bit perverse to me. I don't know. It it just doesn't seem to me to be any harm if you are progressively taxing people 
so that t- I would rather tax people to keep them at a moral maximum wage than not pay people. I don't know why. I'm having some weird, maybe it's my own puritanical um, indoctrination that says, well, if even if he's rich, <laughs> Bill Gates, if he, you know, barbacks, should get his salary and then he can choose to do also, what he wants. Ultimately, like, also, ultimately, like, I'm, like, for instance, if I think about, like, the vision that I have, right? Because everyone who thinks of politics has, like, a vision of America, right? It's one where, like, people where needs are needs are sort of guaranteed in some way, by some means, by, like, the state or UBI, whatever it may be, right? Like, people's essential costs are guaranteed, and they do, and people are simply doing, like, what they love, love to do. And if what they love to do is something that could only possibly pay $3 an hour, fine, because everything else more than more than their needs more than just basic like a hole in the wall apartment like in this theoretical world where basically where you have enough ubi for all that stuff right if you decide if then you decide to like make like go on to make um i don't know like all you do all day is like paint no one loves your paintings but you work for a shop and they and you love doing your job the shop can only really pay you two dollars an hour for that job of painting things that no one wants and you know like i'm cool with that you know what i mean yeah in a world where ubi actually was a living wage and everything else was supplementary i mean i i I take your point i take your point i don't know i have to think through why it is that i still have this a little bit of resistance to it but i it's not it's not significant i feel like the resistance is is like a lot like some libertarians what's what's like put the horse before the like are for destroying the minimum wage before you before you do any of the other stuff you know what i mean like here's what it is i because the minimum wage is so low and because the cost of things are so high, it's I was on a CBS over the weekend, and there was like a theft prevention thing on the Sour Patch Kids. Now, we live in a world where there is like a theft prevention siren device thingy on something that costs like the Jumbo Sour Patch Kids like seven bucks or whatever. Probably not even that much. And what I said to my friend at the time, as we declined to get Sour Patch Kids because it was too much work to get someone to come and unlock the Sour Patch Kids so we could go to this movie and see Nope. (laughs) Um, I'm allowed to go see Nope because I just got COVID, so I'm going to take advantage of my two weeks of immunity and go and see a movie movie theater for the first time since COVID. Um, Was that like, well, of course they're having to lock up Sour Patch Kids because who on earth is going to pay it? an hour of their salary for some fucking Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> like, of course, like if you are minimum wage, you better steal those Sour Patch Kids because the hour of your labor certainly was worth more than this bag of gummy candy. So, like, there's this part of me that just is resisting this, I think, because, like, this idea, this, like, narrative that uh, an employer just can't afford to pay it and I would go out of business if I had to pay you a living wage. There's a part of me that resists the opportunity for businesses to exploit. But I hear what you're saying. If the if the floor is really high enough, then no one's really being exploited. You could just opt out of doing the work to begin with. And I'm I'm with you on that. I think my my reticence is just some skepticism about the floor really being high, being high enough. I get it too. Oh, and 
just like side note um going to the movies during the pandemic is like the best time going to the movies like ever because there's no one in there no <laughs> yeah, one there's like, nobody in there i have been to i've been to movie theaters and there's like three people in there you can be maskless and be like 12 feet apart <laughs> <laughs> like you've missed out on the golden age of movie going <laughs> <laughs> well you're right i was at a theater in baltimore too and there is there were i think there was uh, one other person other than my little group of friends in the mezzanine, uh, in the, yeah, in the mezzanine. And I, we, I heard voices in the balcony, but I, if there were 10 people in this entire theater, I would have been surprised. Um, yeah. Also let me know if anybody saw Nope and what you thought about it. I did. <laughs> yeah. What'd you think? I don't know what that movie's about. <laughs> I don't know what, what do that you mean? Are, about. are you like not a I, sci-fi person? I, I, um, I mean, I, I'd say I am because like I kind of watch anime, watch Star Wars, all of that. Um, but like I loved it, I liked the movie. I just don't know what it was about because there was like there was a lot of themes going on there, and I, I especially at the end, like I kind of wanted some explanation as to what it was and where it came from. Like it was an alien. Give me, it came give space. Me a, what do you want from? What do you want? What do you want from Jordan? <laughs> I want. <laughs> I want more. Like I need answers. I think that that's definitely it needs a uh, a sequel. I feel. Okay, I think you're one of those people who just needs more. You want more. Resolution. I don't want to say. I'm trying to think of a way to say this that doesn't sound like like are there more? Like are there more? I need to know. Like are there more of these things? Right. Why like, do you how need to know that? Where they come from. Why do you because, need to know that? Like, How does that change the the story? Okay, you know what what it is because whenever I'm thinking of like these movie situations or whatever, I'm always thinking about how I'm gonna get out of it. Like, if this thing were real, like, how would I deal with it? And if in real life I just beat some like killing saucer thing, right? Like, I want I want to know where it came from, how far space. away it came from, how far it be in next space. Time. It came from. See, this is why. Like, you're not a. You're clearly, my friend, not a Star Trek person, because the idea of an alien being that's not a that's not a spaceship filled with aliens. It's just an alien that flies through space. It's something that Star Trek will prime you for. There was a Do great we know episode that? called like, Tin Man. Can't, yeah, can't it, they established space, that, it, like that wasn't answered. There, it was heavily implied it was, that it's from space. No, no, it, we, it's implied that it's from space, right? But something can be, well, from space meaning from not Earth, right? Yes. And something can be from not Earth and can't travel through space at the same time. You think that an alien ship dropped it on Earth? No, that was not my interpretation. My interpretation was so like my, my this interpret- Tin Man, this episode called Tin Man, where they find like a ship. Like they, and it turned out to be an alien, but it's both, and you can be inside it, and it will make little seats for you to sit down, and it's got this. It's evolved to have a symbiotic relationship with hominids, and it, it seemed like it was dangerous at first because it was sucking power off of their starship, but it was just trying to feed because it was a baby, and you just have to understand and show, you know, understand that things are sentient, and like that. Star Trek primes you to understand the world in that way. But like my thing is, is it a cow? Like, like when I say is it a cow, like it, is there? some other higher being that put it on earth right it can't travel between stars or whatever by itself no that's just eating grass first of all i don't i don't know the answer to that i my my feeling is the answer is no but i also don't understand what this does for you 
in the understanding of the movie. I mean, I don't know. It just makes me curious that I want answers. Like, there's just a lot. And then the whole thing with the monkey, I mean, the ape, um, like, I thought that that was going to be tied in at some point, and it wasn't. See, that didn't bother me even a little bit. But I get it. But it didn't bother me. It was themes. It was about feeling like you were, as humans, that you're powerful and that you can conquer your environment and that you can tame animals and you can tame nature, but how that's a foolhardy mission and that we are all hubristic. And, you know, that we, we think we know this and we don't, we know and nature read. is so much more powerful. <laughs> this is well, how we you know, know you read a lot. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> saying, like, that, it get... was the theme. That was, that was the theme. I feel like a, like, lot of people, a lot of people didn't get that theme, and I feel like it's because... I'm not good at English. I'm not good at English. I was never no, good they, at like, like they were horse. They were horse wranglers. First, first it's all about like wrangling the horse, wrangling this beast. And like in the opening scene where their um, old dude from Get Out is in the movie set with the horse, and he's like, "You guys, be quiet. Don't startle the horse. Have respect for the horse." And all of the Hollywood people are acting like it's just another prompt. The horse gets scared and almost kicks somebody. Like that's the first. That's the beginning of this theme of like. You're not really, nothing is really tame. You have to have respect for the powers of what is out there. You know what I mean? And people who are, are, are hubristic and, you know, don't have proper respect for nature and what's out there in the world, they'll get screwed. And so then, okay, that happens with the horse. And then we see it replicating itself. It's the Steven Yun character. Spoilers. I mean, mild spoilers, not really spoiler, but he ends up in capital T trouble because he tries to treat the the alien like a carnival attraction, right? He thinks he can tame it. And then we all find out what happened, <laughs> you know? And it was only Light by having like going some, off of my head, blowing my mind. Yeah. <laughs> it makes and sense. This, well. The monkey on the set, they think you can just treat it like a prop and then until it goes ape shit, you know? And the same with, you know, the alien ultimately it was, you know, they had to like, level with the thing and like really respect it and treat it like a beast that needs to be tamed properly and that needs to be engaged with on some kind of equal level the way that they like engage with their horses in order to defeat it and there's the sibling stuff and themes about you know love and commitment i mean it was i thought it was i thought it was beautifully drawn you're right that they don't directly tie the monkey stuff back in, but I thought that was kind of like impressionistic and delightful. And but Just you know, like, to me, it wasn't even yeah. clear that the um, uh, the kid who was the the guy who was the actor from yeah. the show, the kid show with the monkey. It wasn't even clear to me, like until like way after that, he had seen the saucer do its thing. You know what I mean? And then that like, he was trying to he was trying to call it out like actually. Like it, it didn't even occur to me that that that's that. what they were going with. It that's that so huh? I forget who says it, but someone in the movie says, like literally like makes it explicit in dialogue that the reason that the creature has settled in that valley is because Stephen Young has been feeding it regularly. He's been buying up those horses. Oh, I didn't even to feed catch it. that. Yeah. The, also, I don't know where you were, but the audio quality in mine was not great, and I was missing a lot of dialogue. But that definitely was said. You should do a you should do a spinoff of Bad Faith where you talk <laughs> about sci fi stuff. 
don't don't get me started. I'm already trying you to get something to voice. No, you I, have a brilliant you... voice. You can do voiceovers. Get somebody to edit the videos. It's perfect. <laughs> a million views. It's gonna happen. Hilarious. No, I just, I just, I liked this movie. The people that I was with didn't love it either. Um, but I will defend it. I will have other it. criticisms though. It was beautiful. It was beautiful though. It was like, like I think the entire experience was great. I didn't get it. Like I didn't get it. But it was also like pretty and like. Like, you know, well done that I appreciated it. You know what I mean? Did you like um, us? Um, yes, but I, I feel like the, the ending also, like, I was confused at. Well, I wasn't confused. I got I got what he was going for, but I was like, okay, what now? Everyone. No, see, I did over. not get I what he was going what for. I think that the criticisms that are being raised about Nope were 100% true of us. Like, I think us, like, Nope was not the heavy conceptual project that us and Get Out were. It was like, it was just a space alien. Let it wash over you. Like, it wasn't that deep. I mean, there were things about, like, you know, the power stuff and nature and the Hollywood stuff and exploitation. There was stuff in there, you know. But it it wasn't like a race pick the way the others were. I thought that Get Out was perfect. I thought that us had a lot of ideas and like Jordan had not figured out what he actually meant by any of it. Like he did not know it was just creepy vibes. And I, it was too specific. Like the, the politics were too specific to not go anywhere. Whereas in Nope, I felt like it was more of an impressionistic kind of a film. And I didn't have those same kinds of expectations that things were going to be tied up neatly. The fact, like, that the the principal drama with the alien was tied up very neatly was enough for me. It wasn't about, like, race in America or – it wasn't about any of that. It was there's an alien, you know, and the alien is (laughs) eating things and we got to stop it. But like, and they also never resolved the um the whole thing with the the cloud that stayed, like that that was never really brought up again. And did the cloud go away at the end of the movie? Like, did anyone go back and like look at the the sky after? You're asking too many questions, Andy. Like, I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> you're, look, you're making a good point. They never really explained how they wrangled the cloud thing. But I'm just gonna go with it's the kind of it's the kind of alien that can wrangle a cloud. I can accept that. Can you accept that, Ayende? <laughs> I mean, I can accept it now that you pose it as something that I can accept. You know, I, mean, I guess. I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, look, thank you for um, indulging right. me. I've really enjoyed you. <laughs> Have a good thank one. You. Keep the faith. <laughs> All right. You too. Bye. All right, Alex, you're up. What's on your mind? Hi. Can you hear me? I can. Awesome. Um, longtime listener, first time caller. Um, I was going to talk about Monkey Box, mm, yes, but I could please. talk about Nope too. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I thought it was. <laughs> well, give us a little bit. Give us a little bit. I think it's only fair that we talk okay. a little bit about this episode, but we can also talk about Nope after. Well, I mean, I, I really like the episode. Thank you for doing an episode about this. Um, I also thought your radar was really good about Monkey Box, and I also have been feeling like. Um, just a lot of like resonances with like early COVID and mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, well, thank you because nobody watched that radar. <laughs> uh, well, I did. I did. Um, <laughs> um, but I guess like 
I was a little surprised by some of what Dr. Thrasher said on the pod. Mm. Um, I don't know. And I guess it just comes from a place of like, I truly don't know what to believe or who to believe or trust. Like, you know, should I trust the CDC? I, I mean, I don't think so. Should I trust the like Instagram infographics I see or the Twitter threads I see? Like, I don't know. It, ju- it just feels like it's like a crapshoot of like, information that I don't know what to believe. And so I guess part of what he said that I was a little surprised by was just like, and I don't want to mischaracterize what he was saying, but like Mm -hmm. he seemed a little uh, like flippant about like the concern of it, like spreading beyond just like gay men or men who have sex with men or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Cause like, I don't know, that seems like something that we should be concerned about, you know? And, and, Mm -hmm just in general. And, you know, you brought up like surface spread on like towels or bed sheets or whatever, you know, all these ways that it seems like it can also spread. Like, Mm -hmm. so I don't know. He seemed a little, I was surprised. I mean, he seems like in general, like a trustworthy, knowledgeable person, but it also seemed a little counter to like the majority of what I have been like seeing on the internet about the potential spread. Um, I I think he was kind of explicit about why too. Right. And this is, you know, what I brought up at the beginning of this episode is, this tension between wanting one policy outcome, one material outcome, which is for the vaccines to go primarily to the most at-risk people, which is men who have sex with men. I agree. That is true. But also, as a a not-man who does – well (laughs) – as a not man, regardless yeah, of yeah. who I have sex with him. But no, yeah, I, exactly. Like I, you know, I also want to know how to not get monkeypox. Yeah, I think you know, that's I, totally I'm not reasonable. I want to get a vaccine, but I want someone to level with me about whether I should be going, for example, to get my nails done. <laughs> you know, like is that a high risk kind of a scenario, and should I just be doing at home kits for the next month or so, or is that an overreaction? Because I would have said that's an overreaction until the you know the the World Health Organization opened its mouth and said I could get it from a towel, which radically changed my understanding of how this thing was transmitted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just feel like I'm like I don't know what. And I mean, it's like, again, in early COVID, we did all these crazy things that we probably didn't actually need to do, but like we were being told to do or whatever. Um, like I wore my mask in my own car. That was insane. But like, I don't know. I did it. <laughs> like that, like <laughs> I think back on some of the crazy, but like, why was I doing that? That was stupid. But Wait, like, you were alone in your car. Okay. Now I like, okay. So I, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I'm sorry. Yes. It just, I don't know. We were like, wear a mask. So I did. Like, um, No, I'm laughing. Anyway. But I was, when I was outside, like I was in New York that summer a lot. And I was like, I'm going to get my ass hit by traffic. Cause I, when someone came at me on the sidewalk, I was ducking out between cars, like trying not to come in close proximity with people uh-huh. outside on the sidewalk. Last. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just, I'm just like, it just really feels like a free-for-all, no guidance. Like, I don't want people who are not gay men to, like, feel immune. Like, and that, you know. Um, mm. But I also, I don't know if you look at Joe Biden's Twitter. But he, like, I was just curious. I was like, has he said literally anything about monkey pop? Literally nothing. Oh, that's a good question. Let's go at POTUS. Like, I looked a little earlier today and not a single word. Just okay. a bunch of other stuff. I am not. 
seen anything from the account of Joe Biden. More money to Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. I know Twitter's not everything, but I feel like it's a general sense of like what, you know, obviously like the president is trying to communicate. That's actually fascinating. Has he really not done a single I mean, he must have said something about monkeypox, right? I mean, correct. I mean, to my knowledge, no, I could be wrong. I don't listen to everything that man says, but I could be wrong. But Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I, at the beginning of monkeypox, I was very like, oh, they're just trying to do another thing to get me to click. And this, there's no way this is going to be a real thing. And, you know, it might end up not being real it like we were like at 3,000 cases or so yeah. in the last week you know whatever maybe it will stay contained and it's fine it, they were they didn't have the vaccines but now it looks like they've gotten through that logger jam and they should be out and you know people who are you know from vulnerable communities seem to be very diligent about lining up to get them which they yeah I know a lot of for. I know a lot of people who have like already gotten it um yeah, everybody, all of my gay friends are, like, clamoring for it. They're not trying to let, you know, Hot Girl Summer get ruined <laughs> by this shit. So, like, everybody's on the ball, which is lovely. But, you know, someone in the comments is like, would you not, does the fear of getting HIV prevent you from going to a nail salon? And it's like, no, because I know how to get HIV. <laughs> and it's not from going to a nail salon. The, the whole well, point is that the COVID stuff, there's never been a recommendation that says, or I, I shouldn't say never been, but at least not since like 1987. Has there been a recommendation that said, don't share a towel or you're going to get <laughs> HIV? That's crazy. But literally WHO is saying that about monkeypox. And what else is crazy to me is like, th this is a disease that has existed. This isn't a new disease. Like as, as you pointed out in your radar, like yeah. shouldn't there be a quick and easy, like, I don't know, guidance. Like, don't we know more about this disease because it has existed for, I don't, I don't know, however long. Well, that's the thing. I think that people do know, but there's this weirdness about how folks are framing it. I think because they're trying to prevent a run on vaccines, you know, broad panic, you know, people stigmatizing gay men. Like, and I understand all of those incentives, but honestly, it's, I don't know that it's going to help in the same way that I don't think telling people not to mask in the early days of COVID ultimately helped anything. You know, it just, it just eroded public trust. Tell people, like, if you want the vaccines to go to gay men, save them for gay men. But don't lie to me about how the, the the disease is transmitted. You know, tell me, like, what, you know, is it useful to keep using all these Purell machines that are over everywhere? Great. I'm going to keep Purelling. And if that's that, that's that. Like, there's this, this whole back and forth about whether it's transmitted, um, it, whether it's airborne. Okay, well, it's not airborne in the way that COVID is disseminated through like vapors that hang in the air but it can be in droplets apparently that can like land on you in like a closer quarters kind of a way okay well there's advice being said that like masking doesn't help well i mean it probably doesn't in 99.9 .9 percent of the ways it's transmitted but like that's the thing just just be specific say probably it's not the biggest way it's going to be transmitted but technically speaking it could do x y and d but it's like they don't trust the public just to be honest. Like, it's just be honest. Okay, it's skin-to-skin -skin contact. So why are we calling it a, you know, it's a, should we be calling it an STI? 
I mean, there's other STI, other things we consider to be STIs that are also skin-to-skin contact that don't technically require, like, intercourse, like herpes. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, man. This, I'm not a doctor. Don't listen to anything that I've said here in terms of medical advice. All course, I'm saying I, is that the ambiguity is the issue. And I'm sitting here, like, I'm literally reading articles as I'm saying this, and the articles are not clarifying. I'm like, I'm looking at articles <laughs> as I'm talking to you right now. And it's not helpful. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I've just felt a little like insane because <laughs> I'm just like, should I be freaking out? Should I be doing this? Um, but I'm glad you did an episode about it. Like, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you. And we'll, you know, we'll keep updating the more that we learn. Obviously, I don't think it's like the biggest deal in the world, but like, you know. Sharing drinks, it says, possible transmission. Dancing on a crowded floor, it depends, (laughs) says this article. At a grocery store, a coffee shop, or public transit, unlikely. Great. Sharing a bed or other items such as towels, possible. Kissing, possible. Mon dieu. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's why I'm a hermit. (laughs) It does feel like, I mean, I I feel like one thing I have heard is that, like, (laughs) if you are a man who has sex with men, like, maybe... Maybe cool it on the hooking up with people. Like, until. Excuse me. Excuse me. Like. It is hot boy summer. (laughs) Wow. It is Leo season. Excuse me. (laughs) Well. The boys are going to be vaxxed and ready to go. Don't you worry about it. Oh. They're they're getting it together. Thanks. (laughs) All right. Thanks for calling in, Alex. Thanks for taking my call. (laughs) All right. Brian. What is on your mind? Lots of cats. A lot of cats in the chat today. Uh, Brianna, my question is, what's on your radar? <laughs> um, and so I'm glad I got a chuckle out of that. Uh, every time I hear you all uh, say that, you know, I kind of wonder, like, what the subtext is, you know? You know, I'm, I, I just imagine that there is a long-running, you know, subtext drama there. <laughs> no, it's mostly just... They start rolling, and we haven't established which of us is going to say it. So there's a lot of frantic eyes, like, are you going to say it? Are you going to say it? Are you going to say it? Like, there's three of us up there at once. I'm like, who's, who's going to say it? Who's going to say it? Am I looking at camera one? Uh, I'm looking at camera two. <laughs> I love that so much. What if you accidentally said, uh, what's on your view screen? And, you know, as a, a, tre- a Trek shout out, um, you know, it just makes up the, you know, the radar segment. Well, I do. I mean, it does feel really silly sometimes to do the same thing all over and over again, but Every time I try to improvise anything on that show, I end up turning into word salad. So I've got to really anchor man it and just read off the podium, read off this. Uh, to be honest, I am I'm loving rising right now. Uh, YouTube knows it. I know it. Uh, people in group <laughs> chat know it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's legit great. And, uh, you know, shout out to you and align me. And I mean, just um, excellent work there. Uh, yeah. Those segments are really awesome and, and valuable and, you know, great work and argumentation and, you know, as an educator, you know, would be an awesome thing to point to and use as a, uh, you know, just a way of breaking down argumentation, looking at the pieces and what they're like 10 to 15 to 20 minutes sometimes. So just really appreciating the work there. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. And I have also really enjoyed, I mean, I know that some people want there to be more, a more stable roster of hosts. And I get that there's been a lot of transition over the last year and a half. But it's been, I really enjoyed seeing Eliami and even people who I don't always agree with, um, like, you know, but Batya and 
know Katie's going to be on this week guest hosting, and I don't know. It's it's fun for me to watch as well. Um, can I read you one of my favorite comments I screen capped from your last sure. rising? That's awesome. No, I, I did it while I was on that, waiting on that hour long call. I'm just, okay. Um, Sorry. This person for no, I just did it, JP. This person four days ago said, "As many times as the government continues to fail, dot dot dot, Brianna still wants to give them more power." <laughs> <laughs> I love that sentiment yeah, so much. That's that's me. Maybe it's time for another radar about, um, you know, democracy and the idea that it's not giving an abstract government power, but we need to have more ownership. I mean, that's what I just did this interview. Wait, did it air? No, I just did an interview today for Thursday with a guest who was talking about that and how he thinks that kind of a parliamentary democracy is the way out of all of this and has some critiques of a Marxist approach. And you guys will feel the way that you feel about it. Um, but, you know, the power that comes from knowing that you're actually having having some control over your government, either on a local level or, uh, local level or more broadly. And, and his diagnosis was that so much of the um, culture wars and the panic over small things that don't have anything to do with most people's children is about that feeling of powerlessness because you're so not used to thinking that any of your opinions are going to be expressed writ large in our public sphere. So when you get a little bit of control in your school board meeting or whatever, you just go ham. Um, anyway, go ahead. No, I, no. I feel like I interrupted you. No, 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 not at all. I've been actually been thinking about school board and approach there. And someone, I don't know, there's a propaganda number. Someone told me a school board seat uh, in one of the largest districts in the Pacific Northwest where I am is $2 million. And what? Just, I know. And, and who can say, is that a whispering? Is that just demoralizing? I mean, I, mean, it doesn't sound I don't like want to possible. spread anything, but it's just like, it just, yeah, it just, it's, I don't know. Is that a place to attack? It's, I don't know. It's literally the requirements are you just have to live in the boundary. So that has a ton of power. Anyways, anyways, that was just a side note. Um, uh, I was also going to just say about, you know, as a trick, yeah, Michelle Nichols, that's a, that's brutal. That's brutal. That's a tough one. Um, actually, I didn't watch too much original series. Mm. That's a Trekkie. I love the animated series, the original animated series. Mm. Somehow I had that on VHS. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, me a TNG Deep Space Nine person, by the by. But still. Same. Same. But I don't know. Like, I, I remember the first time I dressed up as Uhura was in law school. <laughs> yeah. And I, I bought some cheap costume off the internet in the... The, the gold braid around the wrist was made out of a material that was not elastic. So you couldn't like hike the sleeve up. You know what I mean? Because it, it was so tight around the wrist. Yeah. So it was sweltering. And I ran into two other people with the same Star Trek costume. And they had each like gnawed through. We had all like clearly made some attempt to break the... <laughs> the thread around the wrist because we were all burning up and when we bumped into each other and we looked at each other's wrist and we all looked like rats in a cage trying to get ourselves out like 48 hours and we bust out laughing and became fast friends for the rest of the of the night so you know it's trekkies i mean there's just so much trekkie love when you go to a convention when i've gone to conventions dress as a horror that's the only thing i ever dress as whether it's normal uhura or i went last august as mirror universe uhura the other Ahuras go so hard in the paint and it's so yeah. nice to like all come together and take these group shots. And I got to say, I, there are not always opportunities. I'm sorry. I, I don't like to dress up 
as other races. You know what I mean? Like I, I always prefer to dress up as a black character if I can, because it's like, I don't know. First of all, I'm not putting anybody's blonde wig on my head. I'm just not doing shit like that. <laughs> and it just, I don't know. It feels, there's something prefer. I don't know. I just, I don't care to do it. So to not have to go to some marginal place to do that, like, I once was in a group costume and I was like the black backup dancer for Katy Perry in the California Girl music video. You know, and I'll commit to a role. Like I was the best black backup dancer from the Katy Perry music video that you've ever seen. But like it's it's just wonderful to be like a main character and a gorgeous main character and like just I just it's 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 and you see that all the other black girls who are thinking the same thing and on the same page. And it's it's just the way the first caller was talking about how easy it is to talk to people in your community and how we have to do that community building. I feel at conventions, that's the easiest place in the world to connect with people. The nicest really? oh people, the goodness. most open wow. people. I have such, I feel like Star Trek conventions are like being in a Star Trek utopia, especially if you wow. dress up because everyone, little kids are trying to take pictures with you. You're flashing each other, like live long and prosper signs and like fake phasering each other and like recording videos for each other's TikToks. And it's just like, it really feels like you're at camp and you know all these people already because you know their characters. And so you just walk up to each other and you just start talking about each other. It's, you know, I took a, I ran into a mirror universe Spock and we did a whole photo shoot together. I mean, it was, it's just excellent. It's so good. And I don't know. She'll, she'll be missed. I know that her last years were a little bit difficult and, you know, I'm, I was very sorry to hear about that, but um, I'm very, I'm very grateful for her legacy. As a, as a Midwesterner, I grew up so dang far away from, convention convention scene but i did get to you know for several halloweens the uh one william t Riker. you know oh, i yeah? had a beard and that was the qualification <laughs> um and i convinced this girl you know that i was dating the time god bless her to be dr crusher because she had red hair you know and it was a <laughs> thing and it was awesome and um once um in a heated discussion uh, i accidentally butt dialed a friend and said you know i was talking with this gal at the time and saying, Doctor, get off my bridge. And that was recorded somehow and became a, it's a meme in that group. But, oh, yeah. I miss a good um, Trek, uh, the Trek uh, role play, uh, dress up, convention, life, if only. Uh, so much missed. Anyways, uh, last thing, last thing I want to say. Mm-hmm. Get off. Um, y'all talking about science fiction in an interesting way. Not you, per se, but other people like it's a thing. I want to push on people that like it's not a genre. That's You're just never going to be able to define it. It's just mm-hmm. not really possible. People have been trying forever, and, like, it just, I think the better or more interesting approach is to think of it kind of as a mindset. And, honestly, there or, like, a mode of consciousness if you want to get kind of academic and exciting. And um, it's like a, there's a great Marxist critic who talks about how science fiction allows you to per, uh, perform something called cognitive estrangement. Mm-hmm. which is literally like being able to uh, suspend your d- disbelief, but within a world with like internally consistent rules and walk around in that world and like examine if this would be a better alternative to what, you know, we presently exist in. Hence, you know, what is it called? You know, cognitive... It's called cognitive estrangement is the uh, t- uh, term. And you're doing that when you interact with a novum. So I can track the novum would be a starship that can go anywhere that can create a warp bubble so you can defy Einstein in physics, you know? And, huh. um, yeah, yeah. And that allows you to you know, move around in this internally consistent world and then think about it side by side vis-a-vis 
he uh, Mark Scrig uh, is a dude named I don't know how to pronounce his first name Darkow I think Suvin. Yeah, I see it. Uh, I Googled yeah, him. he's uh, a yeah. he's dope. Uh, there's uh, I think the big one is like the Metamorphosis of Science of Fiction. Science Fiction. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely worth thinking about. But like, I also want to resist you know lumping dystopia in there. That's just a personal you know thing of mine. Like, I don't know. Like, and maybe this is a weird or dumb thing to say, but I just feel like dystopia is something like. It kind of gives sci-fi a bad name. And when people talk about mm-hmm. hating science fiction, sometimes they talk about like hating the dystopians that, that they read when they were in high school, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I'm so damn sorry if like Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. or 1984 and all that is mm-hmm. like the only exposure you have, then hell yeah, that wouldn't be my thing either. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but um, not that they're not awesome, but like William Gibson, Octavia Butler, Samuel Bolin, literally anyone else is just so much better and usually hooks readers anyways mm-hmm. um science fiction homies it's not a it's not a genre it's not something you can sell a ticket to it's a, it's a way of uh, approaching the world i love Left that it's gonna need that Left i is love gonna need that. that i i went through okay. a dystopia phase uh where uh, i just yeah. read dystopias for a year and i enjoy them but it's not the same it's not why i like sci-fi i'm completely with you nah. on that so nah it's not yeah i really love this stupid movie called logan's run as a kid I watched it, I, I had the VHS, I watched it probably like 30 or 40 times. It's horrible. It's terrible dystopia, you know, where it's like on your like 16th birthday, you're just going to get killed because, so, you know, you fall in love and you better run for it. And, you mm. know, if they get you, you're dead. It's, it's like the simplest mm. freaking premise of all time, and I love mm. that. And then, um, you know, everything else. Uh yeah. I would really push like Octavia Butler on anyone who says they don't like science fiction. Yeah. Have them yeah. read the story Blood Child and then get back to them. Or like uh, William Gibson. Have them take a look, you know, push them, you know, on uh, maybe uh, if they like The Matrix, you know, push them on uh, maybe uh, some of Gibson's short stories or, um, you know, the big one, Neuromancer, which is kind of tough to read, kind of James Joyce style, but uh, amazing uh, nonetheless. All right, I took some notes. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's go. Let's or go. I heard about I sci-fi podcast. William, William Commander Riker. Commander William yeah, Riker. yeah. That's the worst <laughs> one. I, I, I think my favorite character is either Data or Worf. I love those two so much. That's the only reason I watched. I mean, Picard is cool, but like Data and Worf, that's what it's all about. Every single episode with them in it is just so damn good. So damn good. I maybe, love this. Maybe and I, I had a weird thing for Troy too, maybe. My mom thinks she's Troy. She has an apron that says Counselor Troy on it because she's a psychologist. And she has, like, I, we did a Star Trek episode last year where I wore, like, the blue Troy outfit. And it's my mom's. I was wearing my mom's Troy outfit because we all know I only cosplay as one woman. And that's Nichelle Nichols. Thank you so much for calling in, Brian. And maybe I'll see anytime, you at anytime. some future hey, remember, convention. Remember, science fiction, not a genre, not a genre, not a genre. <laughs> all right. Adios, everyone. Personal record on the call in for speaking down for me. <laughs> Later, have a good one. Shelly, what's on your mind this evening? Hey, Brie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are, how are you? So I'm getting a little feedback. Oh, I'm, I'm good. I just recently got over like a terrible bronchitis infection. So oh, no. I've been like sitting muted on the sidelines, unable to speak. Um, for I'm glad you got your voice back. I, I am too. 
Um, I also, I, I did at the very beginning um, see in the chat that a couple of people were asking about Kim Iverson. And so I'm just asking mm -hmm. just because I said that I would ask you if you had any comments about Kim Iverson leaving. I've seen her explanatory video. Yeah. I understand her perspective. I was just wondering if you wanted to speak real fast about that. My only hesitation is that I don't <clears throat> want to throw producers under the bus. Mm -hmm. I, I like the producers. I think, I, you know, I like Kim on the show. Like, whatever yeah. you want to say about it, she had a perspective that people responded to. And, yep. you know, and it was it was useful. I don't know. I think it was a useful perspective. Obviously, a lot of people feel that way. And it, it's better to engage with it, even if you disagree with it, it is my personal perspective. <clears throat> I, I don't like because she was in LA. I don't have as much of an interpersonal relationship with her as Robbie, but I liked her and I thought she was always very generous and kind. Now yeah. I know the, the, her politics aside, I know all the things that people think about all the things. Now, in terms of what <laughs> happened, um, I frankly, you know, I think I think it's a mistake to not invite Kim to interview Fauci. Mm -hmm. The way that it was explained. I mean, Kim knows much more about it than I, I mean, I wasn't part of it. Um, I don't ever come on on Mondays, so I wasn't a part right. of that Monday conversation. But, you know, it would seem to me to be kind of evident that if you were going to interview Fauci, you should immediately propose that Kim was going to be one of the interviewers. And if Fauci declines, then either take it to Kim and see how she feels about it. But if she absolutely wants to be on, then you decline the interview because on right. some level, Kim is the biggest draw on the Hill. And, you know, if, if you don't, the way it happened, Kim didn't have the ability to say, you know, Fauci wouldn't face me. She wasn't even given that opportunity. Fauci wasn't even really presented with the opportunity to say no to Kim because the Hill didn't put Kim up, which puts Kim in the position of feeling like she's being betrayed by her own producers. Right. I, I completely understand that. Now, as I understand it, it was kind of an accident and just like a mistake and it wasn't like intentional, but I, I, that's hard. That's difficult given everything that we know about Kim and her politics and how it seems to me that the first thing that would come into your brain when you book Fauci is Kim. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I, I, I understand completely why she is choosing to walk away and I wish it didn't happen this way. And you know, yep. I wish things had gone differently. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, it, it sucks. There are plenty of things that I disagreed with her on, but I do think that out of everyone that came on the Hill, she was the strongest on foreign policy. And she was the strongest on basically, even though there are a lot of things with like kind of like her obsession over COVID and also Jimmy Dore kind of has the same thing for me too, like just kind of the obsession over the COVID stuff. Mm -hmm. It's kind of tiring for me. I'm kind of over it. Um, and just the fact that people continue to be like amazed and surprised that there's corruption inside of our political system. I'm just like, okay, why, why are you guys like still like foaming at the mouth over this? Like this, this, this should be expected is it can get a little bit boring for me, I think. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing that I wanted to say, and then I actually want to get into the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> But there's one more thing. So I, I was really upset that I wasn't able to join in on your conversation with Norm Finkelstein. You had mm. you had attempted to really like prioritize sort of like female guests and, and stuff like that. And I, and I know that's 
hard because there are so few female callers that mm-hmm. feel comfortable calling in. And I think that's a whole other episode as far as like, <laughs> why is it that females don't call in to these shows? Um, I don't know. And also you'll, I'll see you guys in the room. You'll be in the room. Like there's, I mean, obviously just based on avatars, but there's some ladies in the room, but they're not as much in the queue. Yeah, they're not. And I, and I think that that is definitely something that, that might be a valuable conversation at some point as to why it is that like men, the second, like, and I'm not saying this as like as the repudiation of men, but I'm saying like the second that you go live, men are like, I'm right here. I'm ready to give my opinion. <laughs> Someone needs to hear what I say. And women are just like sitting in the back being like, no one really cares. No one really cares what I have to say. So I'm just going to chill out here on the back, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I think, I think that's a whole other separate issue, but as far as like the vow, like Norm Finkelstein and his return to like the leftists don't have an argument for the value of life. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that yes, there is the leftist argument for the value of life. And it is the value of the woman's life over the fetus's life Mm -hmm. that is not fully formed, does not have a single opinion does not have any type of life experience, cannot perform a job, a task, a function. So essentially what you're doing is if you're saying that um, this fetal version of life that cannot exist outside of the female's body has more value than the female's productive capacity throughout their lifetime as a fully formed person is actually anti-life for the female. Yeah, so I mean, I do think that the the best pushback to Norm is that there, you know, his argument I think didn't always give voice to or accommodate the reality of the female, like the the mother's interests. Right. Um, however, I mean, I think the counter the the pushback is it is not always the case that it's a zero sum game. Right. Obviously, there's ectopic pregnancies in these kind of medically dangerous situations, but the argument I think that pro-life people would say is I value the mother's life. She's going to have to take the hit for nine months. I feel a way about that. You feel a way about that. But the argument I think they would have is it's a, ultimately a short-term hit, and now you guys both get to be alive. And if you want to argue that you know the state should offer more supports to mothers or that the foster care system should be better and adoption should be easier and all of those kind of things. Well, then let's work on that on a policy basis, but that doesn't justify the, you know, moral stain of abortion, I think would be the argument. I think more of my question is I would want, and and, and you're a much, you're much more, you have much more better elocutionary skills than I do. So I think that you would be able to form the, the question in a better way. But essentially, whenever you look at the female's life, the things that they will be responsible for, you know, the burden of child rearing, because it's not just carry the kid for nine months, it's go through the birth, potentially have all of the other things, Mm -hmm. then raise the kid for 18 years. And, you know, to me, if we're going to quibble over the value of life of the fetus, then he hasn't answered the question of the value of life for the woman that is carrying the fetus. And so that, that is, I think the thing that he, he didn't address is if you were going to bring it down to a value system of what has importance and what should be 
like you can't deny that like because he kept saying it you can't deny that there's potential life there okay well there's the potential life of the female which one are, are we going to extinguish are you going to extinguish the fully formed person or the non-fully formed person but that's the thing i think the argument is that neither you can you don't have to extinguish either of them and i i obviously yeah. hear you okay. and understand that like yeah. you know in real life people tend not to give their kids up for adoption for many, many reasons. And you still have the pain and the health consequences of birth and all of that. Like I, I completely hear you, but I think that their response is, and again, Norm, Norm supports abortion. Oh yeah, he absolutely does. I, but yeah. I mean, I think that the, the response is just that like you, it's not a zero sum game. Both people can live and you truly can, even though it's not great for the kid nine times out of 10, but you, you can give the kid up for adoption. This is the Amy Comey Barrett uh, argument. So that takes all the 18 year stuff off the table. And so it really is like, do you think if you think that killing is wrong and this is murder and this is a life at conception and all of that. Well, I don't know why everyone was wiping their groceries down with Lysol because bacteria is a single celled organism. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I get it. Like we can get, we can get into all those things. Not all life is, I mean, like, you know, people, people feel this way that the potential of human life is important and distinct for religious reasons or other kinds of moral and ethical reasons. And that it is worth the woman taking those kind of hits, those physical hits in the nine month hit to not extinguish that life. I mean, that's how people feel. And yeah. And and that's kind of where I feel like the debate should be centered on. It's the, like, if we're going to talk about the value of life, then there's, then the conversation has to be centered on, well, women should take those hits. And then the argument is, but should they? And then yes. that's more where the argument is. But also yeah. speaking of a single-celled organism, I really feel like there's a way to unite the far left with Republicans. And I feel like if China shoots down Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> fucking jet, then we can come together, baby. Let me ask you guys this. I, I confess that I have not, when, when it's the weekend, I tend to try to check all the way out. So obviously I've seen this Nancy Pelosi story, but I haven't been following it that closely. What guests do you think would be good to have come on? I know the usual suspects, but I would, I would prefer to have a little bit of a balanced panel since this is not my area. And I would like, you know, if we have like Danny Haifong, I would love someone who can also push back a little bit or, you know, Ben Norton. I, I would love to have someone who can just push back so we get all the arguments addressed in a way that I might not be able to do. Cause like China is not my issue. So let yeah. me know in the chat. I don't know if you have suggestions. No, I, I, I think you're right. I, I would suggest Ben Norton over mm-hmm. Danny Haifong. I love Danny, but Ben Norton has like an internal Rolodex where if you want the, the person that can argue the strongest and like literally just like flip the Rolodex and come up with all the arguments and give you all the sources and all those type of stuff, then Ben Norton's your guy when it comes to um, exist, like currently existing socialist states and like the third world. And, you know, um, I would not recommend Matt Stoller. Um, <laughs> okay, I, but that would be a fire episode. <laughs> girl, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm telling you. Um, it would be fun and it would be infuriating. Um, and, and then I, I don't know who to take as, as the more moderate take. Like I would say get Sauger on because Mm -hmm. he really fucking hates China Mm -hmm. and he can sit over there and foam at the mouth as much as he wants. But I can't really think like, honestly, I can't really think 
of someone that's even remotely left that is moderate on China. I really can't. I wonder if Matt Duss would do it. I mean, I, mean, he, I don't know what he thinks about anything, but I just don't. He might. He has done. I have seen a couple of interviews that he's done ever since he wrote his piece where he kind of called out the gray zone and a couple other people on the left where there are some people that kind of veer into kind of like they can see both sides of it where he's come on and he's had like reasonable conversations. I think the, I think the prep would, would essentially be, Hey, Ben, don't go for the jugular. You know, I, mm. I think that would literally have to be the point because I do think that someone that, really knows the history of it and stuff like that would would put him in a place that would make him uncomfortable and make him throw out the kind of aspersions and accusations that Matt Stoller threw out. And I think that was really, and I, I mean, I was angry at Matt Stoller. I talked to him on, mm-hmm. on your show and, mm-hmm. and, and like, I didn't know he was going to be on and it was literally like you were about to get to me. And then you're like, oh, and here's Matt Stoller. And I was already mad at that dude. And then just like having to talk to him in 10 seconds, I was amped up. Like I was seriously hot talking to that guy. And, um, you know, it it did cause me to sort of lose my temper a little bit. You know, that, that happens. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sometimes whenever people that might have maybe Matt Dusses or Matt Stoller's um, kind of more points, if they're faced with people that know more of the history and know more of all that stuff with it, they get into a really defensive position. I think mm. that's, I think that's where Matt Stoller was coming from. All right. Well, I'll give us some more thought. I definitely, I mean, I want to talk about it just because sometimes I'm like, ugh, I'm going to have to spend some time figuring out what's going on. And if I have to use my brain and like work to understand, I might as well make an episode. Out of it. <laughs> yeah. But also we kind of got distracted with that. And I just kind of wanted, um, as far as the Taiwan situation goes, like, like how like is anyone concerned about it like the audience or are you like I mean like I, I'm just gonna be really honest with you I don't I I I I was in Baltimore living my best life watching Nope this oh, weekend okay. and not following the story oh, okay you know. so I do I mean I have to get off of here in part because I have to figure it out before I go on rising tomorrow because <laughs> I'm sure I'm gonna be asked I'm sure it's gonna come up um but that's why I'm saying, like, I would really love to take suggestions for, um, yeah. yeah so drop I, I, I think, I think Ben Norton or VJ is, and, and your episode with VJ was, I know, awful. it's just so frustrating because both of these people just were just on. I, um, well, I mean, you know, you got, you got to, there is a certain amount of selection that you have to do if, if you're going to handle an issue as contentious as perhaps a World War Three. I mean, you, we might need to bring as best as we can. Unfortunately, I don't have the best um, suggestion for the, for the more moderate side. Yeah. I have the best suggestion for the, the left side. Right. Well, let's um, give it, give it some thought. People drop stuff in chat and I appreciate you calling in. Shelly. Oh, no, wait, Brianna. Oh. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to suggest a movie for you. That's semi sci-fi. Have you seen everything everywhere all at once? I haven't. It's on my list. Um, because I really like Michelle. Yeoh, also Star Trek crossover. Yeah. It's, People have said it's really good, although I have seen the negative reviews and it's confusing to me because it seems to be all or nothing. I think I thought it was really good. I mean, I thought it was really, really good. There are a lot of funny parts with it because I don't want to spoil anything. Like there are a whole lot of like hilarious parts with it. Also, the guy that plays her husband is short round from Temple of Doom, the Indiana Jones movie. 
it's mm. this like first movie that he's done because since he was an Asian, there was no rules for him. Mm. And he finally got the part and he went ahead and auditioned for it and he got it. And he like does some karate moves with a fanny pack that are great. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's good. There's a, there's like time travel, parallel universes. And then there's a whole lot of like family values and like, you know, parents and families learning to understand and accept each other. Like it's, there's like a really great, like huge, like, fun action comedic side to it. And then there's also a whole lot of heart to it. So. All right. It's definitely, it's in, it's literally in my queue. I've just been saving it because right. I don't want it to be a throwaway. But thank you. Thank you for calling in. Um, Brian, you let me know if you have any specific suggestions. I agree with you. We having some Asian leftists on Samuel. What's on your mind this evening? Hello. So uh, it's wonderful to talk with you again. I called a couple times a few months ago, I think, and uh, I fell behind a bit, but I watched your interview with Vijay Prashad, and I also think it was really wonderful, and uh, he seems very wise and brilliant, and I think that he, it seemed to me that he addressed a lot of questions and concerns that you've sort of expressed over Mm -hmm. the past year or two. In, you know, and said a lot of things I really agreed with, but said them much more succinctly than I would. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really appreciated that. And I liked that he brought the stories from other countries and that Mm -hmm. he brought up Kerala. Kerala is actually something I've been reading about off and on for years about, you know, it's a a state in, in southern India that's been run by the Communist Party for a long time. That's the predominant party. But they have they have enormous support because they basically say, well, we're going to send people out into society and find find people in the villages, the tribes, the whatever, the ashrams, the 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 occupational groups, whoever, and just talk to them and ask them what they need, <laughs> you know, and 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 mm-hmm. be responsive. And they draw on the social networks on the ground, which. I think is is so critical. And of course, like you said, it's, it's hard for Americans because we're not used to talking to strangers that much. And it's, uh, it is awkward for us, you know, just walking up and saying, Hey, I'm an organizer with this or that group. But, mm-hmm. but I think that, you know, Americans are different that way. And I'm that way, you know, I'm, I'm a private person and I don't walk around talking to strangers much. I live in a small town and there's a lot of people I don't know, but it is overcomable. And so I guess, you know, you were asking for good news. I would say I have a sort of good news. I just want to present a different perspective where, you know, I talked before when I've called before, I talked about the O word organizing, you know, and said, we need to organize more. And, you know, understandably, you seem to be exasperated that so many people keep saying, we need to organize, but there aren't necessarily specifics, and it's intimidating, it's difficult, it takes a long time. But I would just present the other side, the other perspective, which is that I really believe that organizing is not as hard as self-proclaimed organizers would have you think and that we shouldn't be too intimidated, and we shouldn't be deterred. And I guess something that's come up a few times is you've sort of said, well, I, I call, I've called for actions. I've talked about a general strike. I, I pushed the argument on force the vote. 
And I got responses from people saying, well, Brianna, you shouldn't say that because you're not an organizer. And I, that really got my hackles up because I really believe from my experience, you should never listen to people who say, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to say that. You're not an organizer, TM, right? You don't have the right credentials, the right training. And I say this from personal experience. I was part of the movement against a big luxury development and gentrification in New York City. Mm. And I contributed, you know, in a way, not a huge way, but I played a part and I think I helped. And in large part, it was because I entered this movement with other people, some of whom happened to be paid organizers with nonprofit organizations who basically acted as gatekeepers and said, oh, we can't do that yet. We can't hold a rally. We can't have a petition. We're not organized enough yet. We don't have enough names. We don't have enough email addresses. And we, we can't do anything until we have total consensus. This is something you often hear from like deputized organizers from the nonprofit industrial complex. They say, oh, no, mm -hmm. we, we can't do that yet. We don't have total consensus. Someone out there might not be happy with it. We might make someone upset. So we can't do anything. And they end up acting as gatekeepers and inhibiting action when I believe it, ha it really should be the opposite. Organizers should be gate openers, you know, and, and organizers mm -hmm. can can play a role basically by uh, just, for one thing, being facilitators, just putting people in contact with each other, saying, hey, you've got this group in this building. Hey, what do you know these other people want to organize to babysit? You know, whatever it is, get people together, get them in a room or just send an email, make a call, make sure people are aware of each other on the same page. And then when necessary, occasionally just do something like pick a day. And this is what happened when I was involved in this movement to stop a luxury, uh, to stop a bill to change the zoning of a particular block in New York City to allow for a luxury high rise building. Everyone was saying, we've got to do something. We've got to protest. We've got to march. But they were all looking to each other and nobody was stepping forward and making a plan or making a proposal. Yeah. And there are people who I like very much. They're wonderful people. They did great work. But they basically, constrained the movement and said, no, 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 we can't do that yet. We're not ready. And I just said, I don't care. And I was, I acted as a spokesperson and a representative for a group that started as a group of volunteers volunteering to canvas for Bernie in, mm -hmm. in Northern Manhattan, in Washington Heights and Inwood, which are largely Latino working class parts of New York City. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, I'm representing this group uptown for Bernie. If y'all aren't ready, that's your problem. I'm saying we're having a rally on August 3rd and I'm going to get the permits and I'm going to do, you know, it wasn't all that complicated, but I stepped forward and said, we're doing it. If anyone else wants to participate, rally to us. And they did. And people came forward and they, they leafleted and they, they canvassed and they contacted the media. You know, and I did some of this, but others stepped forward too. And it was a success. We succeeded in holding two big rallies and getting media attention, getting mm. uh, English language and Spanish language media to report 
live and embarrass that congressman until he had, or sorry, the city councilman, until he had to back down and kill the bill. So it was a success. And it wasn't just because of me, obviously. It was thousands of people. But I just acted as a catalyst, right? I, I, in a way, the dominoes. And I think this is really where organizers come in. Sometimes the opinion is there. The anger is there. People are ready to act. They're just not sure what to do. And the dominoes are lined up and someone just has to push the first domino and get it moving. And then it starts happening. And I can't fully explain it. I don't know why, but I can tell you there is an army of, of deputized organizers sent out by the nonprofit industrial complex who prevent that from happening and who put up barriers and reasons not to act. And I just believe, and to me, it, it upset me a bit when you recounted how you had been discouraged from, say, talking about a general strike. Because one of my thoughts was nobody should tell Brianna Joy Gray what she can say or what she can do. And, 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 you know, it's up to you. It's your decision. But I would say you tell those people to kiss your butt because <laughs> you, you're using your best judgment and you're saying what you think needs to happen. And if you can help, you can help. And nobody has the right to say, no, you're not, you're not a deputized licensed organizer like me. You're not allowed to do that. So I just say, you know, don't, don't listen to that. And when it comes to a general strike, you know, I'm, I'm glad you talk about it. Somebody has to. And when it comes to force a vote, similarly, I, I concur with everything that neoliberal tears said. Uh, I am glad that you continue to harp on force the vote because somebody has to because it was a revealing moment. It was a meaningful and revealing moment, and it was a test of who is willing to act and who just is talk, right? And, and if someone is willing to step forward and say it's time to act, they should do it, right? And it doesn't, you don't have to be a genius. Just like Jimmy Dore said, he's just a jag-off nightclub comedian. He, doesn't, he has no <laughs> professional training. He's not a licensed, he doesn't have an MSW. He doesn't have any, he didn't go to the nice schools. He didn't uh, get trained in the right courses. He just said, this is something we can do. Now let's do it. And people responded because they saw the validity of what he was saying. Yeah. So I, yeah. that's just what I want to get across is don't, when people bring up the O-word, it can be very simple, small things. And, in, and often when you're doing organizing, it's not because you're an organizer with a capital O. It's not because you have all the correct ideas or the correct training. You just see a small thing that can be done and you take one step and other people, other people follow or other people go beyond you or it takes off way beyond what you even imagined. You just have to do a little part to act as a catalyst. And I would just say, don't feel intimidated. Well, look, I appreciate you, Samuel, saying, uh, don't, don't, nobody puts baby in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, look, I don't want to lose humility over being new to these spaces and not having a lot of the on the ground experience that other people have. Like I, there's a delicate balance between not being deterred and not being, you know, hubristic and, you know, ego, kind of egotistical about the whole thing. So, you know, that is, that is the only balance that I'm trying to strike, but I will say that over 
the, you know, almost two years now that I've been doing this podcast, the more people I talk to, the more confident I am making affirmative arguments for maybe what should be done or might, what might be useful to try. And if you go back and listen, I mean, if force of vote happened today, I think I would have taken a very different posture than I did, you know, when it happened a month into this podcast, having started Mm. (laughs) or whatever Mm -hmm. it was, you know, two months into the podcast. Um, And it's not just because the newness of the podcast is because, you know, I, you know, I had to do some interviews and talk to some people before I came to the conclusions that I've kind of come to at this point. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't as ready to immediately say certain things are bad faith until I talked to a number of people, you know, it was illuminating and I'm very appreciative of, um, goodness gracious. The gentleman who came on, who was the Bernie NNU, uh, Bernie healthcare surrogate, uh, who also used to be head of NNU, whose name I'm blocking right now, who was very honest about the fact that, you know, Medicare for all is over now and we're on talking about a 20 year horizon. Like hearing that that was the institutional response made me a lot more confident in saying that you got to act now Mm -hmm. on some Mm -hmm. crucial shit, you know, hearing, you know, having the back and forth where regretfully we weren't able to get the NNU rep on the show you know, made me feel a little differently about their willingness to maybe come to the mat over certain issues and how much we should rely on even the most wonderful left-leaning unions. You know, having a certain kind of conversation mm-hmm. with Jane Mazzalevi mm-hmm. was eye-opening for similar reasons when she was pretty candid about some of the gaps between union leadership and um, rank and file and on and on and on, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn those lessons. So you know, I'm, I'm now, I think where I need to be, but it is still, I, I still want to be open to the possibility of being wrong. And that there are a lot of people who have been doing real organizing work for a long time. You have things to offer. Yeah. I appreciate when people say, you know, it's going to be hard to do a general strike or we don't maybe have the infrastructure to do a general strike. I think that's a fine thing to raise, but my next question is, well, what is required to have the infrastructure mm-hmm. to do a general strike? Let's talk about that. Cause I really am not interested in talking for the next 10 years about how we don't have the infrastructure to do yeah. a general strike. Yeah. And what can we do about that tomorrow? Ab- right? Absolutely. And that's where it starts to feel like bad faith when people don't want to go to the next step. They just want to keep talking about all the reasons why we can't, why we do, can't do it. Yeah. And there's, there are always reasons not to act. There are always reasons not to act. But anytime you're trying to accomplish anything, even just put up a barn, at some point you have to knock some heads together and make something happen, right? There are always going to be people saying you're not ready, you can't do it yet. And I would just comment from my perspective, when it comes to a general strike, a general strike I think is an unusual idea because it's not targeted, right? It's not like, oh, we're trying to uh, get some specific demand met at some specific workplace or in some residential building. It's about people just being fed up with their whole conditions they're living under and not being able to put up with it anymore. And so I would argue that a general strike actually requires less planning and organization than most than targeted political actions. And if a general strike happens, I don't think it's going to be because there was some busy bee organizer going out there holding meetings and collecting emails for 10 years. It's going to happen because people are fed up and somebody just yeah. says, let's not go to work on October 1st. And it spreads. Yeah. Like these student walkouts have happened very organically that way. Some of these students, students walking out over the environment. I mean, look, this abortion thing happened. And the fact that look, I would, people feel differently about these things. I would have rather lived in a world where Roe got overturned 
and people were having conversations about striking, even if they didn't do it. But to me, mm-hmm. the fact that like Roe gets overturned and literally even in the most angry feminist, Rebecca traced her corners on the internet. Nobody was like, people would say abstract things like we got to burn it all down. But no one was like, we're going to walk, walk off the workplace. Maybe in the middle of constitution Avenue, we're shutting down the highway. Like that was just not a part of the discourse at all. And it's, it's, it's almost like the, the liberals who control that, part of the discourse are not even aware of the tools at their disposal. And it's because I feel we don't even talk about these things. We don't talk about the historical examples. We don't talk about what's being done in other countries. And when you even try to bring it up and talk about it on the left, sometimes some leftists discourage you from doing so and accuse you of not having a big enough brain to understand Mm -hmm, how hard mm -hmm. it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say a from experience, yeah, it takes work. Yeah, it involves risks. You might sometimes fail. But if you put yourself out there and say, I'm doing this and others who want to can follow me, sometimes it works. You know, and you don't have to be some big brain licensed organizer. And like you said, in history, I'll just say, you know, the labor movement had to start somewhere. You know, there wasn't always some professional organizer out there telling people how mm-hmm. to do a union or how to do a strike. And striking in America started in Rhode Island in 1824 when the textile mills raised a number of hours, they added an hour to the workday and cut the pay of the workers who were mostly women at the power looms in the factories. And they just said, you know what, we're just not doing it. We're walking out. And other workers in other mills followed suit. They didn't, and they, they didn't have no Twitter. They didn't have no email list. It was word of mouth. That was enough. Word of mouth. We're not putting up with it anymore. We're walking out. And there was a weeks long strike and they won. And that's where the labor movement started from. It didn't start from some, you know, social worker just come out of, uh, just, just come out of Yale School of Social Work telling people how to do a strike. You know, and people have this faulty notion that you have to have all this infrastructure and technology to make these things happen. And certainly some people have a lot of experience, for sure, and a lot, a lot of know-how. And that's good. And, and they can offer that, right? They can offer their experience, their know-how to facilitate and to help people. But it's, I, I would say it is ass backwards, excuse my language, it is ass backwards for them to say, because I'm so clever, I have so much experience, I can tell you not to do what you're trying to do. Right. I can restrain right. you. I can be the gatekeeper. And, you know, and I think it, I have the sense, I'll just lastly say, I have the sense sometimes that you feel a lot of pressure because a lot of people kind of come to you like, Brianna, what do we do? <laughs> And that's not your job. You know, you don't you don't feel that you're an, an expert and you don't know exactly where or how to direct people. But I would say if you whenever you feel ready, if you just say, look, here's here's a person who has an idea. Um, try it out. You you might that might be the little thing that might be the little push you give that pushes over a domino. You see what I'm saying? And, and I don't want you to feel more responsibility or more pressure that now that's your role. But I would say don't try not to feel afraid of it. Right. And try not to feel that um, that you're stepping out of bounds if you do that. You see what I'm saying? 
No, I hear what you're saying, and I really do appreciate uh, your vote of confidence, Samuel. Thank you so much for all of the thoughtful things you said today and for your emotional support. And it matters. Uh, <laughs> and please do take care of yourself and keep the faith. You too. Thank you. All right. Brian, I'm going to try to wrap this by 1030, but I wanted to get to you because I haven't spoken to you in a while. What's on your mind? Okay. <clears throat> We're doing speed round. That's fine. Um <laughs> So I wanted to talk a little bit about monkeypox um, mm. because when I was listening to the episode today, mm. I um, was very like antagonistic about what Dr. Thrasher was saying in terms mm. of like he thinks it should be an STI. And I was like, no, that's misleading. It's stigmatizing, blah, blah, blah. And mm. then I did some like more research on my own. And the reality is in terms of like the data, um, most people like the vast majority of people that are getting monkeypox it's not from like casual contact they're mm -hmm. coming into contact with like genital sores mm -hmm. and so it's happening through the act of like sex mm -hmm. so like all of these other like theoretical um things like uh, like I was very nervous cause like I like to go out cause I'm having a hot boy summer too. Mm -hmm. And like the reality is, is that people getting it like at a bar or like at a public place or even through a towel, while there is a theoretical risk, it's like very, very low. So after learning that I did kind of see where he was coming from, even though I also share a lot of your similar concerns. So I just wanted to put that out there. Okay. This is all I'm saying. The World Health Organization needs to do a little soul searching and then come back to me about this towel business. <laughs> I need to know what the deal is with the towel business. The implications of the towel business are extreme in my view. Because I was all all down for like being like, this is not, you know, this is this is not a thing that you really have to worry about outside of sexual contact, blah, 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 blah. I'm ready about to bounce on and go about my life. Until this towel thing came down the transom. So if you're telling me, like, this, this is what, this, I'm going to go back to the whoever it was in the chat that was like, oh, are you going to get worried about getting HIV from the nail salon? Truly no, but truly nobody's talking about towels in any of these other contexts. Towels? No one even was talking about catching COVID from a towel. <laughs> towels? That, like, I don't, like, if they want people not to be alarmist, they need to take that towel shit off the bullet pointed list. That's all I'm saying. Because that is wild to me. If it's only like a point oh 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 percent, it, like, you know, there's there's all kind of weird hooky dooky kooky ways you can technically catch a lot of stuff that's never going to happen. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you could technically, you know, you could technically have a cut on your hand and someone else has a cut on your hand. But, like, we don't talk about transmission of, like, HIV through those kind of ways because we don't want to stigmatize it, right? But technically, a lot of weirdo, crazy happenstance things could happen. But we don't want people, like, not hugging their friends and family so we don't talk about that shit, right? Because it was already so stigmatized. If that's where we're really talking about with this monkeypox stuff, take it off the list. I don't want to know. <laughs> take the towel <laughs> off the list. If it really is that level of, like, improbable, take it off the list. But they put that shit on the list, Brian. <laughs> they did. They did. And they, they're definitely causing, like, a lot of panic. And um, I would say that, like, obviously, like, we're, we're Bernie bros. So, like, we know that, like, the problem is, like, the for-profit medical system in terms of, like, why we have such a short on um, 
supply on demand of the vaccines to begin with. And um, I kind of feel like it really dovetails with like um, Bernie's federal jobs program because like we need to increase production mm-hmm. um, in this country so that like these things um, can be more readily produced. Because even me, like, oh, that's what else I wanted to break up, um, talk about. Like, the other thing that people don't talk about in terms of, like, getting the vaccine is technically um, in the rules, it's not just um, men who have sex with men. It's men who have sex with men, and you have to have contact with a new sexual partner in the past 14 days. Mm -hmm. So now, like, they can't, like, search my phone or, like, (laughs) put me... Like, back camera me the last 14 days, whatever, um, to, like, actually prove that. But but they're really prioritizing, like, people that get it in. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that, like, um, like it's not just, like, all gay men. Because even me, like, I'm not even personally freaking out about it. Because, like, um, I'm only having a hot, a hot boy summer with friends. Like, I'm not really hooking up like that right now. <laughs> um... And, like, even if I was, like, nervous about monkeypox, that doesn't really do me any good right now because even in New York City right now, it's virtually impossible to get a vaccine appointment. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like Beyonce tickets. That shit goes on sale at (laughs) 6 o'clock. 6 one, it's done so. (laughs) Like, try again next week. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it does feel like, yeah, yeah. It's, like, people who are getting them are highly motivated, which is probably a good little self-selection situation people people who know that they want to be on the streets or are in the streets in line getting a vaccine too look yeah although there are like like racial justice implications now because it's a lot of like white gays from chelsea like taking up Mm. appointments Mm. and like east harlem and shit so that's causing like a little ruckus right now um but like like mm, i don't know if i'm getting fired or whatever but like i work in public health and Mm -hmm. like we can't like well i i don't know like it's hard to like like make sure that, like, people who live in the neighborhood, like, sign up, like, on the website for, like... And this was a thing in COVID, too. Yeah. I remember I didn't, like, you know, they were doing the rollout of the shot for people who were more publicly facing and stuff. And, you know, my job, whatever you want to call it, was not on the list, you know. So I was one of the last people to get it in my cohort. And I remember, like, when I finally did sign up for a vaccine, it was going to be even a longer wait because everything was booked and busy mm-hmm. and it was this thing where it's like oh you can go and get one if you drive to maryland and there was all of this kind of a thing going on for a while and it at that point it was more that like redder districts had more accessibility than mm-hmm. you know more working class districts or black and brown districts were having more availability but still it felt ethically a little weird when the time came because like, there, there was an opportunity to basically cut in line if you were just willing to drive somewhere yeah, and it's just a shame because, like, this is just a problem that we created by putting profits over people. So yeah. it is what it is. But I don't want to take up too much time, so I'll save my stuff for the next time. But I'm going to see Nope on Wednesday, so the next time we talk, I'll let you know my thoughts. Although I am kind of okay. biased. I am kind of biased because Stephen Ewan is my husband, and I also stand Kiki Palmer. So okay. well, we're going to have to fight over him because one cosplay I did do was when I was dating my uh, Chinese-American ex. We did do the the costume from um, Tessa Thompson and Stephen from uh, Sorry to Bother You. Oh, that's iconic, though. I stand. Yeah. So. I, felt, I felt good about that one. So. Is he, like, also 
Like he's married though, right? I think I checked that. <laughs> that hasn't he's like married with kids. Is that hasn't stopped me in the past, and it's well, not going to okay. stop me with Stephen Ewan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's on then, guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks so much for taking my call. Enjoy your night. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Keep the faith. You guys are great. I always enjoy you. Let's go out with a little bit of um, a classic Uhura songstress-ing from the original series. Take care of yourselves and keep the faith. The skies are green and glowing where my heart is. Just another journey.